Is it getting a little better back east? Yes. I think the weather, the government has not been telling us how bad the weather is back east. Uh, I saw an ad in the classified section of the New York Times today. It said, please contact, contact. <laughs> well, it's very small print in those ads, Jeffrey. Please contact box 234 if you have any information about a city named Buffalo. It was in the New York Times today. <laughs> Should have all the snow in Buffalo trucked to California. <laughs> Did you see on the news the other night they were actually loading snow aboard train trains and heading them and south. carrying yeah. and carrying it south to melt for it to melt? <laughs> yes. Now that's kind of sad, isn't it? <laughs> California would love to have snow out here because we have a drought out here. You could raise the temperature in Buffalo and melt the snow by asking Congress to meet there and speak. It's the best source of hot air I know of. This business of how we perceive the reality of racism in America depends in large measure on who we are, where we live, how much money we earn, and, of course, whether we are white or black. About five months ago, something happened in Buffalo, New York. It was a traffic accident, which made some news for reasons you'll understand in a few minutes. I may have been aware of the incident at the time, but if I was, it didn't really register. I may have read about it in the paper and then almost immediately forgot about it. Several of my black colleagues here at ABC heard about the incident and were outraged. This, they argued, was a clear example of the sort of insidious racism that white people rarely notice and almost never acknowledge. Early this spring, with the last vestiges of a hard buffalo winter still visible in occasional piles of gray ice, I flew up to Buffalo to look into a traffic accident. How much you love roses? Rocky Which brings us to Cynthia Wiggins. Cynthia was only 17 when she was hit and killed by a truck last December. What are you doing, huh? Now that just makes her one statistic among tens of thousands of other traffic fatalities last year. What else can we tell you about Cynthia? She was an unwed mother, attended school sporadically, and she died after a truck ran over her. But people do not agree on why she was killed. Cynthia, you see, was African-American. It's racist. And that's what caused her death. Racism. 1996, racism is still alive. I don't know if you can call that anything except racism. Within Buffalo's white community, you'll find just as many people just as sure that race had absolutely nothing to do with Cynthia's death. I think it's, to be honest with you, utterly ridiculous that racism is even brought into a situation such as this. Race is the excuse for everything these days. And anything that, that happens that's bad, it seems like that's the excuse. There have been many cases, many things that happen in our society where automatically racism is thrown out that it's got to be racism, it's got to be racism without any proof. Well, that's crying wolf. Remember now, we're talking about a traffic accident. No one has charged that Cynthia Wiggins was run down deliberately. No one has even suggested that she was killed intentionally because of her race. 
So why do feelings run so high? Why is there such a difference of opinion clearly split along racial lines? Part of the answer may flow directly out of the fact that Cynthia Wiggins was not really all that extraordinary. She was, in so many ways, a typical teenager with perhaps a few more problems than her family and friends like to remember. Cows, Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's day, Tuesday, July 19, 2022, so I have been told. Uh, we had to switch the schedule for the week around just a little bit. Still doing all of the programs uh, as they were originally outlined at the beginning of the week, just had to slightly tweak the dates and times. I will, you know, detail all of that uh, probably before we sign off today, just to make sure there's no confusion, make sure that everyone has the updated schedule for the remainder of the week. More to come on that later. Now, uh, for our broadcast today, Buffalo, super important. Again, the victims, all of the content that we have done uh, on Buffalo, remembering the victims who died May 14, 2022. Celestine Cheney, Hayward Patterson, Pearl Young, Roberta A. Drury, Ruth Whitfield, Aaron Salter, Catherine Massey, Andre McNeil, Geraldine Talley, Margus D. Morrison. The 10 victims murdered May 2022. Again, while we are doing all of this content doing our part to make sure that this is not uh, forgotten and to, to use this tragedy as best we can to better understand racism, white supremacy, why these types of tragedies continue to happen in the system of racism. Again, uh, the many, many programs that we have done, even difficult uh, to keep track at this point. So we've had Anna Blotto on the program to discuss her research on segregation uh, in Buffalo. We had Matt Greider on the program, 50 years of journalism at the Buffalo News, Frank E. Dobson Jr., Buffalo native and author of Rendered Invisible, which is so important for today's broadcast. We had Sean Lay on the program. We discussed his book, uh, Hooded Nights on the Niagara uh, we had Dr. Neil Krauss on the program, Race, Neighborhoods, and Community Power, Buffalo Politics, 
1934 to 1997. Uh, last week we had Dr. Mark Silverman uh, as a guest on the program. Uh, we talked about his research, uh, so-called uh, neighborhoods uh, in Buffalo, different resistance uh, to different housing projects uh, for black people in the Buffalo area. So lots. Oh, and I forgot the book club. How could I forget the book club? The book club. Absolute madness. Catherine Pellinero, Buffalo native. Just wow. Our cup runneth over. Metaphor uh, with content on the history uh, of Buffalo and racism. Uh, you should have a much better understanding on the events of May of this year. Adding to that today, hopefully some of our listeners, hey, we will do some research and maybe we should try to learn a little bit more about Buffalo, uh, try to better understand this event, at least as I said, use it to better understand racism, white supremacy, and even specifically because they just had the Topps grocery store reopen some of the dialogue right on our conversation today some of that dialogue was hey we got a lot of people we got to have this store open because we have a lot of people they don't have the means to travel five miles to get to the nearest Whole Foods so we gotta get this store back one of the major themes our guest for today's program talks about other folks said hey there's a reason that a white supremacist terrorist could target and say, hey, where can I go and kill the most black people? Hmm. Someplace where they don't even have options for a grocery store. They'll all be clustered at one store and I can just go kill as many as I want. Hmm. That was another argument that was brought out. Lots of different things, in addition to the store reopening in general. Lots of different themes that were touched on uh, for today's content. In addition to the audio that we heard at the very beginning, going all the way back to Cynthia Wiggins. The first time we heard that audio, I meant to say it and I forgot. Second time around, I will not forget since they've just been talking the last couple of days about arresting Carolyn Bryant Donham, Emmett Till's accuser. In that segment about Cynthia Wiggins, they talked to some of the folks in Buffalo and they said, hey, folks have been running around here and saying that Cynthia Wiggins got hit by that bus at the Galleria Mall, saying that that's racism and they don't have any proof. That is wolf whistling. Wow. Heard that before. Anywho, our guest for today's broadcast, he is a professor in the SUNY Buffalo State Department of Geography and planning. Uh, his research interests focus on the physical and social evolution of cities and their constituent neighborhoods with a particular interest in policy and planning for distressed neighborhoods. Try and get specifics on what does that mean? A distressed neighborhood, it would seem, it would seem the area of East Side that Peyton Gendron targeted that would qualify distressed neighborhood specifically a listener found Gus's report we've been doing so much dialogue and reporting research on Buffalo a listener found our guests 2018 report walkable and resurgent for whom 
the uneven geographies of walkability in Buffalo, New York. Lots of pertinent information and again, wow, amazingly relevant for the reopening of the tops in Eastside. Anywho, real pleasure to have him joining us, hang out with us for the program this evening. Our guest, Dr. Jason Knight. Uh, Dr. Knight, are you with us, sir? Good evening. I am here. Awesome. We can hear you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Tuesday evening with us, uh, Dr. Knight. Uh, for any of our listeners, uh, I'm sure for some folks, this is their first time uh, hearing about you, hearing from you. Uh, anything briefly that you would like to share with us just about who you are, the work that you do, sir? Yeah, I mean, a quick sort of rundown. Um, you know, I've you've uh, been in academics for nine years. Uh, I'm a lifelong Western New Yorker. Um, suburbanite just outside the city of Buffalo. Um, my family's history um, traces back to the, the east side of Buffalo. Uh, my great-grandparents emigrated to Buffalo from Austria in the early 1900s, landed on Kilhofer, uh, which is just off of uh, Genesee Street near Bailey. Um, their house no longer exists. It was demolished, um, you know, a uh, 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 a sort of victim of, of long-run decline and disinvestment in um, the east side sort of generally. Um, and so my focus and interest has always been um, neighborhoods and neighborhood change, but particularly as it relates to and impacts um, the people that live in those spaces. Um, prior to my work in academics, I worked for a couple of years at Erie County. Um, and then prior to that, I was uh, in the private sector as a planner working in land development for about five years um, you know, doing some, some commercial real estate and, and housing real estate work. Um, and so I've done the private sector thing, the public sector thing, and the, now the academic thing. Wow. Okay. You, you gave us your, your family history and connection to Western New York. So I guess specifically, are you like a, a native of, of Buffalo or right, right in the, in the near region? Yeah. 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 Lifelong, lifelong Erie County resident. Wow. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I may be, yeah, so I you know, don't consider myself a traditional sort of Western New York academic, you know, and that's not a knock on my colleagues that work in institutions um, in this region, but, um, you know, my interest is both professional um, and, and personal. You know, I, I have a deep connection to this, this community and this, in this neighborhood, and, um, and, and, you know, even though I, I live in the suburbs, I was, I was born and raised in the suburbs, uh, my work focuses predominantly predominantly on, on, on the city of Buffalo and, and, and even some of our first ring suburbs that are experiencing some of the um, the challenges that come with aging um, housing stocks and declining investment and those types of issues. So, yeah, I'm a Western New Yorker through and through. Okay. Much obliged for the details, sir. Uh, let's see. For folks who uh, have not seen you, you are a white man. Is that correct, Dr. Knight? I, I am. Yes, I am. Right on. Uh, for this program, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy. I use those two terms as synonyms, and I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone 
in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a, there is a definite racist um, undertaking and under and sort of tone to a lot of our public policy without question. Um, and the definition certainly fits the bill in that regard. I also think, um, you know, class is fundamentally embedded in that conversation. Um, and, and if it's, if it's not, it, it should be, um, you know, what happens in our rural communities is really, um, uh, an issue of class. We've ignored rural communities for a long period of time, um, in favor of predominantly suburban communities. So, um, class plays a large role in the outcomes that we see on the ground. The challenge we have in, in this country is disproportionately, as you know, um, people of color, our minority populations are disproportionately um, lower income and impoverished compared to white households. Um, and so what we have is a sort of poisonous combination of race and class that results in these outcomes that we see, in, for example, in, in Buffalo as racial and economic segregation and, and all of the complications and challenges that come with that, um, that, that situation or that position um, in general. So, yeah, I mean, I think race is clearly and undeniably a factor in this, but I also, I always try to always have a conversation about class. All righty. Um, I, I guess I have to do a request and then I have to ask that question again. So for this program, um, for this program, I have concluded, unfortunately, one of the ways that white people practice racism white supremacy is not answering questions when non-white people ask them things so i do request if you could answer the question make sure that we get a clear explicit answer to the question and then you can give us the details around your answer that would be great uh, and this is one that's very important because i didn't say race uh, and i didn't say that we have an undertone of race or racist undertone or racist undertaking to laws. I certainly am not having a conversation about class. This is when I have to be very emphatic about particularly speaking with a lot of non-white people. Unfortunately, white people in a system of white supremacy constitute a class to themselves. I don't have as much time to get into that as I need to, but for this broadcast, anything you don't agree with, you have your view, that's great. Make sure that I'm not putting any words in your mouth, but if we could just get clean answer to the question. So the question that I asked originally, do you think, Dr. Knight, my definition, I'll give it again, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think that that system exists, but I don't think it's wall to wall. 
what and for our listeners this is what i mean about those metaphors because i don't really know what that is what what does that mean exactly yeah i think it uh, well i think when you say that well is that your definition of white supremacy yes sir racism white supremacy okay so that then, is my definition. yeah so so someone who sure so someone who classifies themselves as a white supremacist um and acts in such manner that definition fits That, do you need me to give the definition again? Because that's not what I said. You asked if that was my definition for white supremacy, and I said yes, and then you changed it. So I'm going to give the definition one more time. And if you don't agree, that's fine. You can just you know, say that too. My definition, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Is that definition accurate? Sure. Sure. Okay. So is that sure the definition is accurate and the system exists? That's sure for both? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's my answer. Okay. Hmm. Uh, just the wall to wall, it took a lot of effort. That's what I mean. I've had this like, consistently and for listeners, maybe if they're new or what have you, that's really important because I point this out all the time. Frequently, people talk about racism, white supremacy, and they don't provide a definition for their concept. They use these terms as though everybody has the same definition, and that's not true. Not only sometimes people use these terms and they don't have a definition, sometimes we use these terms and find out that people have all kinds of different types of definitions. So I think it is essential, fundamental definition at the very beginning and then if you find out people don't agree with your definition that's fine they can give their definition they can explain why it doesn't work then you can have much more clarity moving forward in the discussion does that make sense dr knight sure okay do you have your own definition of racism that you use sir no i mean i'm a public policy analyst i don't set to effort to define those terms i you know those are those are terms for for some other discipline i'm a geographer um in an urban planner um you know i i don't spend a lot of time dabbling in that necessarily in that purely racism space i spend a lot of my time trying to understand how neighborhoods um that are in this case in the city of buffalo disproportionately um, minority population and why it is that those populations are seemingly disconnected from broader public policies that aim to improve um, their overall quality of life and condition. So um, I leave that up to other people to dabble in that definitional space. Hmm. Do you think racism, white supremacy is relevant to why the you have some of these Buffalo neighborhoods that are depressed, minority, 
disconnected? Do you think racism, white supremacy helps explain why that's the case for some of these areas? I think it's part of the explanation without question. Sure. Oh, okay. I just, for listeners. Yeah, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. And isn't part of the calculus of, of decisions that are made in that space at all. I'm not saying that with any, by any stretch. Um, I'm saying it's part of the overall conversation about what's happening in that space. Um, and so, you know, my interest in those neighborhoods is really understanding how it is that they've come to decline and then why it is that those spaces are not reinvested in and supported um, by state, local, and federal policies, right, that result in outcomes that it actually and fundamentally improve the quality of life and condition for people who live in those spaces context of white supremacy again our guest dr jason knight uh let's see uh before we get to your report specifically i guess question one just i was kind of i checked the footnotes if i'm reading a report or book or whatever just to kind of see the references any folks that have hung out with us before have you checked out angie schmidt's book uh right of way no i have not Oh, okay. I saw her referenced uh, in some of your work, like, oh, she's been a guest on our program before. Some of the similar content uh, talking about cities that are more Walker friendly and all the benefits of that. We'll get into some of that with your uh, report on uh, walkable and resurgence in Buffalo. Um, Let's see, before I get to some of the details in that report, uh, I wanted to ask, number one, since you said that you do so much with, with policy work and research uh, just for folks who are listening lay folks who may not have as much education if you could lower your vocabulary uh, is that a request I can make sir sure much obliged thank you kindly I guess for listeners if you uh, if at some point maybe the content if you miss it or have a difficult time understanding let us know should be making it accessible for all yes uh, let's see and before I proceed as well I want to ask Uh, Have you, in any of your research, have you seen any evidence that a substantial number of individuals who classify themselves as white, that they are going to willfully and voluntarily and eternally desist from the practice of racism, white supremacy? Have you seen any evidence of that, Dr. Knight? No, I mean, in my work, I, I haven't. I mean, when, when you work in the housing space, in the neighborhood space, in the social justice space that, that's around that, um, most of the people, regardless of race or ethnicity, are all rowing in favor of equitable, just outcomes. And so, um, you know, I don't work in the hallways of governance necessarily where some of these policies we might question as, as racist. Um are being developed. So um, my cohort of colleagues and, and fellow researchers and stakeholders don't exhibit those types of uh, behaviors or, or preference preferences, if you will. Hmm. That's when you talk about your cohorts. Do you mean uh, at like uh, like SUNY Buffalo specifically, or who, like could you be more specific about your cohorts? 
Yeah, I mean, I, so I, I work, um, you know, I've worked at the community level in the city of Buffalo with neighborhood organizations. So, um, you know, just sort of helping out where, where necessary, where my analytical or policy research skills can be useful. So organizations like um, recently Grassroots Gardens, um, some Fruit Belt Land Trust um, work when India Walton was, was there. Um, Habitat for Humanity, all organizations, predominantly in the affordable housing space, that are really just working to to provide quality affordable housing um, for low and moderate income households. Um, all of them um, rowing in the same direction towards racial justice. So um, I don't think that those people um, exhibit any tendencies towards racial um, discrimination. And in that Buffalo State, I mean, we're we're a school. It prides itself on um, its diversity and its approach to higher education. We've recently started a social justice institute on campus that's um, it's, it's working in this space. Um, our neighborhood, our, a lot of our uh, faculty and, and centers on campus work in, in these neighborhoods with people um, of all races and ethnicities. Um, I've never come across someone at Buffalo State who exhibits any of those, um, any racist um, tendencies um, in, in my experience. Okay. Much obliged for the clarification. Just making sure that I didn't miss. The, so when I asked the question, have you seen any evidence that a substantial number of white people are going to permanently, voluntarily desist from white supremacy racism? You said no. And then you went on to say that you didn't, you don't think your cohorts are committed to racist ideas or what have you. But no, you didn't see any evidence. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, I don't see that evidence. Maybe I misunderstood the the, the question, um, and I and I certainly apologize for that. But you know, I, my my point was, you know, the the space I work in is a space focused on social and racial justice, and anyone working in that space thinks alike, right? There's no one there trying to indoctrinate or change something towards a white supremacist lens. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, let's see. This does seem very much very relevant. And again, all of our conversations that we've had about Buffalo have been grounded in what happened in May of this year. Uh, what what are your thoughts since you do so much work about neighborhoods and what have you and community empowerment about the reopening of the tops just two months after the uh, murder of these 10 black people and then other folks who got shot there as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough it's a tough question. I mean, we have this catastrophic incident that happens in our city it is undeniably fueled by white supremacy right it's also in a neighborhood that has a massive gap in access to food so what happens is we lose a grocery store that was the heart and soul of, of a large part of that neighborhood in terms of access to fresh foods and quality foods and, and the like. So I'm not here to say how I emotionally feel about the reopening because I don't know how residents are feeling about that. But I would venture to guess without maybe stepping on my own toes here that there is complete apprehension about the reopening because of what happened there. And, and there, I know that there's some some consternation about whether it should have reopened in the first place, which I is undeniably understandable. And at the same time, the need to access food is undeniably understandable. So it is really a challenging position um, for an organization or a business like Tops to be put in 
It's also probably creates some concern in the neighborhood about um, how we move forward in that with that grocery store still here, given what it's symbolically now understood to, to be. So it is a very tough, um, a very tough issue to, to wrap your head around and, and not being a resident of that neighborhood or a shopper of that store. I could only imagine what um, the feelings and the emotions are for people to have to go there. Um, and and, and, and the, it brings us back to the point, right? They have to go there because that is what is accessible to them due to, you know, lack of automobile ownership, limited public um, transit options, those types of things, right? A system that doesn't provide them access to other options. So it's a, it's a serious um, emotional challenge, I think, for everybody involved in that. With Tops, Tops is not Whole Foods. As also someone who does not shop at Tops, had never even heard of Tops to be totally uh, transparent, as they say, before uh, May of this year. If you had asked me, what is Tops? <laughs> I have no idea. Is that a, a new music group? Like, I don't know. Um, so I had never even heard of this place, but I heard it described to me after the carnage as a big 7-Eleven. That does not sound like any place where I want to have to depend on to do my primary grocery shopping. Um, why isn't they said like Whole Foods is like five miles uh, from about the vicinity on Jefferson where this tops is? Why? What do you, what is the what are I guess some of the, the primary obstacles to why this area only has this one lame grocery store? Yeah, I mean, I. It's been a while since I've been in that tops, and I know, you know, I'm not here to defend the institution. It's owned by a bunch of equity, it's basically an equity-owned organization or entity now. It used to be our primary grocery store. I worked at a tops when I was a kid in high school. Um, they were nice stores, and a lot of them still are nice stores, and a lot of them are still being um, rehabbed and upgraded. And I think 7-Eleven, as a comparison, is a little bit harsh. Um, you can't go into a Seven Eleven and have, you don't have a full butcher. You don't have a full produce section. You don't have a deli section. You don't have, you know, the things that if you talk to Dr. Raja at UB, um, and the UB food lab, um, will tell you that, you know, the things that grocery stores are supposed to really provide neighborhoods are the access to fresh whole foods. Um, it does do that. Is it perfect? No. Um, is there room for more groceries on the East side physically? Yes. Is there opportunity to develop grocery stores certainly are there obstacles undeniably um it's a neighborhood you know if we're going to paint the east side as a with a broad brush which we try to avoid doing we know it's a constellation of different neighborhoods but when we look at that area east of main street for decades it has seen population and household decline and the area is undoubtedly our lowest economic, um, lowest household um, income neighborhood in, in both the city of Buffalo and in our region. Um, so it is really, I was talking about this with someone today, it's really, um, it's really a victim of capitalism. Um, it, it's a victim of grocery stores. The model of grocery stores now is corporate grocery. Um, I have a colleague who, who's tried to get a grocery store, who's a developer, tried to get a grocery store on the east side and has literally called every chain and from the smallest chains to the largest chains and they all make the same comment which is there's usually a comment about you know some technical comment 
centered on, well, there's not enough space and we need room for tractor trailers to turn around to dense urban environment. There's not enough parking. There's always some technical reality, but then there's the second part of that, which is there's not enough households to support our grocery model. Right. Um, and so we, you know, from my perspective, and, you know, I sort of mentioned earlier the, the point about class or income, um, it is a victim of the capitalist system that produces large grocery stores and sort of eat, is eating up the, the mom and pops. And so, um, so it doesn't bode well for the east side um, currently because there's no model that really exists. And there's some of us that are having a conversation about what type of grocery model might work over there. Um, but, but still, at the end of the day, I think it's a, it's a victim of um, the way that grocery stores calculate their market area and try to find a place to build um, a grocery store, if that makes any sense. Hmm. Uh, now that's interesting. I, before I get my response, I just want to make sure. So you said talk with it with the food lab, Doctor Raja, with the food lab at UB. Yeah. It, okay, I'll check. Yes. We'll check out the uh, the food lab. That still learning, still learning. Um, to see is that accurate? Before the upgrades, a big Seven Eleven is that an accurate description beforehand? Anywho, uh, so when you were giving your response, you said uh, household income decline on the east side uh, a victim of capitalism and you said you've had uh, I guess some of your cohorts uh, they've reached out to different franchises to try to get grocery stores to come in uh, to this area and sometimes they'll give a lot of uh, I guess technical mumbo jumbo uh, you know oh man you know the streets are so narrow it's dense urban which is you know hey keyword dense urban area you know we can't get our tractors in there oh my gosh it's not gonna work so okay okay then they move fast that one and say oh yeah it's not enough you don't have enough households there yeah it's not enough people it's not gonna work so yeah 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 victim of capitalism that's interesting because I said what are some of the the primary obstacles to them having a store here in an area that is overwhelmingly black right I didn't say victim of racism victim of capitalism and a victim of household income. So are they not victims of racism? Is that not why they don't have a grocery store? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would counter that if you look around areas in the U.S. that are highly dense, and the, the, the density, the household density and the population density um, on the west, on the east side, um, is very low for an urban center. Um, there are literally blocks upon blocks upon blocks in the east side where houses no longer exist. There are more than 7,000 vacant lots on, in the city of Buffalo. The predominant um, count of those are east of Main Street. Um, there has been a massive disinvestment in that neighborhood by the public and private sector to the point where households are scant. They're, I'm not saying they're like rural density, but they are not what we would necessarily consider an urban um, urban population density. They're more di- sort of disenfranchised from that sort of suburban grocery store model. So when you look at the lower density of households, and then you look at the relatively, you know, relative to the city, relative to the county, low household incomes, you take those two things and you have a recipe for people who count money, right, who, who are in the grocery business to make money, they have to weigh the best location for the next grocery store isn't one that's calculated necessarily on 
race. It's calculated based on household income. I was told very early in my career that retail follows rooftops. And so is it racism? It could be. But if you look around at other cities in America where you have high populations of African-Americans, for example, but those African-Americans also have um, relatively low or moderate incomes, you will find grocery stores there. So why is there grocery stores in those neighborhoods? And the answer is most likely because there are enough households and enough money to support a large-scale grocery store. What we could have on the east side of Buffalo is smaller scale, not corporate chain grocery stores um, that serve a smaller population with a smaller footprint, right? So that it is scaled appropriately for the households that are in that neighborhood. And so that's kind of the way I think a model could work um, and why I don't think a decision by Wegman necessarily to not move into the east side is one fundamentally a racial decision for them. It's an economic decision for them. And why the smaller scale uh, grocery outlet that's maybe not the big chain, but it'll leave a smaller footprint so that it's more proportionate to the actual population, though smaller, but the actual population of residents that are there, that seems workable and it seems like they have vacant spaces. So why hasn't that been something that's been, let's try that out. Why couldn't that been at least tried? Yeah, that they, those smaller sort of grocery stores exist. There's an Aldi's on Broadway, which is kind of central to the the east side, north of north and east of the Broadway market. They, it's not like Tops is the only opportunity over there. I think if that is the national um, sentiment about availability of groceries on the east side, that Tops was the only place. That's a that's a misnomer. This is why. Are there enough? No, I mean. That's the second part. Are there enough? No. But they, they do. And when you look at them and you map where they're located and you map population density, they're, they're pretty closely aligned. Hmm. Context of white supremacy. I think I would look at anyone suspicious pretty much for anything happening, particularly if we have agreement with my definition about a system of white supremacy and they look at a problem affecting a massive group of black people and I say, what are some of the primary impediments? And they say, victim of capitalism and all these other impediments. They don't say victim of racism. That would be something I would highlight. Hmm. Anyway, we'll keep note of that. Keep rolling. Uh, now I can get to the report. Hmm. Love it. Uh, getting into the report, the name Cynthia Wiggins, is that familiar to you, sir? Absolutely. Okay. For our listeners, you're a Buffalo native. Who is Cynthia Wiggins? So Cynthia was a teenager who was hit by an NFTA bus in 1996-ish when I was a young man of 22 years old um, uh, out at the Galleria Mall. Um, If I'm not mistaken, um, she was headed to the mall to either shop or to work. She had to cross what is effectively currently and probably still then at least six lanes of traffic, three in each direction, um, at the nexus of the Interstate 90, so a very high traffic, um, very dangerous and very precarious um, intersection. And so, yeah, I mean, we if you're a lifelong Western New Yorker like myself, you recognize the story. Do you teach Cynthia Wiggins in your classes? 
No, because I don't do I don't do transportation stuff, and I, you know, like I said, I don't I don't look my my courses are not necessarily um, framed to look at issues um, predominantly through race. We look at them through through multiple lenses. But since I don't dabble in like public transportation, which is essentially what that question is, um, I don't I don't I don't dabble in it. Interesting. Just for our listeners, can you kind of give us the specifics of of what you teach your students about? And then is this grad or undergrad? It's undergrad. So I teach um, I teach multiple courses in our program. The, the the two ones that I teach regularly are Intro to Urban and Regional Planning, which has this you know it's a diversity designated course. So when I came to campus and revised programs, our program and courses that I wanted to teach, um, I made sure that I revised them so that they had a social and racial justice lens um, through which. Um, through which we could understand public policy, um, and and so um, so yeah, I teach I teach intro to planning, which is a lot of procedure and law and things like that, um, and then I also teach um, urban geography, which um, has a huge module, also diversity designated course, course which has a, a significant module on um, urban poverty, um, racial and economic segregation. Um, economic development, so how do economic development systems work, land use, housing, all those sorts of things. And then I do, um, you know, I do a housing course, which housing is predominantly my focus. Um, and the housing course is fundamentally um, a course that looks at housing as a human right um, and addresses housing shortcomings through um, through the public policy lens. And it, it dabbles in um, questions of racial segregation and racism and white supremacy as it relates to things like redlining, um, which has historic um, ramifications for, for the city of Buffalo. Um, so, yeah, so that's the way we, at least the way that I try to teach teach my, my planning courses. And, you know, we have, um, at least in the inter-urban planning course and the urban geography course, those are general electives in the college. So I get a large number of, and we are a very diverse campus. Actually, our, our population is now, if I'm not mistaken, um, majority um, racial and ethnic minorities. Um, so we are, and you know, I would say the, the majority, not the minority, um, on our campus. So um, we have uh, African-American students from the city of Buffalo, but we have a lot of um, first-generation immigrants um, in, 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 our, in our classrooms. Um, some really excellent Bangladeshi students the last couple of semesters that have, have settled on the, the east side of Buffalo um, off of Broadway in a, in a very clustered um, space over there. So, so I am undeniably focused on teaching planning as a policy tool, but also understanding that the outcomes that we see, um, particularly in places like the east side of Buffalo, are in fact the result of racial discrimination and white supremacy in, the, in, in past policy. Mm. Would have my doubts about that, but okay. Uh, what when you said I got confused just because I don't use uh, that type of verbiage? Is the your campus uh, SUNY Buffalo? Is it majority non-white? Yes. Okay. I didn't. Can you give me the way you said it? Give it to us one more time. I said the majority of our students are what we would would are defined as racial or ethnic minorities. So I said we are a majority non-white campus. You didn't say majority non. I think you said we are majority 
non that's what you said majority non majority <laughs> like what <laughs> which because I've heard that before and I do the same thing every time like what what Woof. like non white that way I got got it I know what we're talking about majority non white camp do you know like the demographics of your students specifically like if you in terms of white students non white students like campus wide no sir just for your classes Dr. Knight like your urban planning classes and what have you yeah, so our, our urban planning program is probably, on average, it's a small program, but probably on average 80% white students. And I've pushed hard um, with very little luck, actually, um, to try to get the college to think about ways to diversify the faculty of our program so that the people that teach the program both resemble the students that they are teaching, but also resemble the neighborhoods within which we work, right? So that we, I have this sort of side desire to see the planning profession um, become more diverse than it currently and historically has been. Um, because I think um, it's, we've had enough of white people making decisions about neighborhoods within which they don't live, um, in which they don't have interest in, other than maybe a professional or personal interest. Um, and so, yeah, we're you know I'm trying to trying to do that, but I'm having very little luck. Hmm. Okay. And when you say it's a small program, like how many how many students are in the program? Um, anywhere sort of waxes and wanes from fifteen to twenty. When I started, it was thirty five ish, right? So we've seen some. The college has seen enrollment decline across the board, and, and, you know, that's rippled through pretty much every program on campus. So, you know, I'd say we're probably at right around 15 right now. I see. Okay. Okay. And 80% white, uh, you said. And you said the faculty. What are the, what's the demographics of the faculty in your program, the urban planning program specifically? Um, well, it's – let's see. I would say it's – majority white right that's i mean that's kind of what i'm pushing back on i mean we we have students to take courses in like gis um we'll take courses from non-white faculty um courses that are outside the program or sometimes non-white faculty the, the college has done a commendable job diversifying its faculty as well um and so we're you know we're cognizant of it and we're working at it um but it is a funding challenge in some cases to just hire a line um hire a faculty for a program that has 15 people in it when you can run it with one full-time faculty or one and a half full-time faculties and some adjuncts so it's uh you know we're we're a victim of the austerity treatment of of higher ed and, and it's it's having impacts that i don't necessarily agree with do you have any non-white faculty members in the department yeah we have uh we have one two three Three out of seven. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, we're geography and planning is a small department. It's a small discipline. It's, you know, 15 students in an undergrad planning program might seem small, but the profession is generally small, right? I mean, not every municipality has a planner on staff. You know, there's, it's just not a very large profession in, 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 in the, the sort of overall um, economy or the, the sector that it's in. So, um, you know, it's not unexpected that the program is relatively small. Got it. 
Um, just for my understanding, I'm trying to grasp how this is not policy and planning with regards to Cynthia Wiggins. Uh, this is from a 1996 report, as you said, back when you were a spry young white man. Uh, February 7, 1996, living on the frayed edges of urban racism. Uh, this is from the Globe and Mail. So I'm skipping to like a quarter of the way through the report. Uh, Cynthia Wiggins was hit by a dump truck, but no one in Buffalo is fooled about the real cause of her death. This is a divided city whose suburbs refuse to welcome an extension of the inner city's light rail system where har- uh, excuse me, where barroom talk refers to the proposal as the Burglar Express. As many local leaders recognized immediately, Cynthia Wiggins was killed by racism. This is John Barber's report. Uh, If that's accurate in terms of the decision about where this bus line is going to be, and particularly if this was something where, yeah, we don't want folks from the east side riding the burglar express easily into the galleria mall and that's what contributed to cynthia wiggins death this is not related to policy and planning urban planning well it's not related to my area of expertise i'm like i said before i'm not a i'm not a public transit planner i'm a housing planner okay what was the other portion it's not something it's not something that i I mean, I'm aware of the incident for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, I think that, did you say February 7th? For this article, article? yes, sir, 1996, yep. Yeah. yeah, that was my birthday, February 7th, 1996. I turned 22 that day. Wow. Um, so, so it's, uh, yeah, so it's like, I, I, you know, I, I understand what you're getting at. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't deny um, that there's racism involved in the way that our public transportation system works, but I haven't done enough research on it to sort of unequivocally make that statement. And if somebody wants to make that statement, that's fine. But I feel like I'm stepping out of my area of comfort, making a statement about a public transit system that I've never studied. I see. I see. Hmm. Okay. Come back to that one. His birthday, no less February 7th wacky all the way 22 i said a spry young white man not free white and 21 free white and 22 for our guest jason knight at that time uh man now on that for real for real so i guess i could ask it the other way with that so since you are generations western new york do you know the 22 caliber killer yeah that was I was a very young man at that time, so I I only know the title. I've never, um, and he was, if I'm not mistaken, and this was like late 70s, so I was like a toddler or a young boy, you know, under 10 years old, maybe late 70s, early 80s, if I'm not mistaken. So he's definitely under 10. Um, I only remember the name sort of popping up later in my life, like in stories about like serial killers, right? So not in depth about it at all but if i'm not mistaken he was targeting african-americans yes sir you're the only person that asked 22 caliber killer way the other folks so if i'd given you the name joseph g christopher you would have said who's that Ooh, 
Oh, <sighs> that's everybody else. That's what everybody else did. Man, I don't know what to say about that. I was excited because I thought you would have more detail and you didn't really have a whole lot more. Is that it? <laughs> that's, that's your... If this was like for a million dollars and they said, give us the import significance of the 22 caliber killer, Joseph G. Christopher, that's it? Yeah, I mean, he, I was five years old when that happened. You know, like, I don't, you know, I'm not a fan of, of serial murder and certainly, again, not my area of expertise, kind of way off the rails for me. Um, I just know about it um, from the title. I don't, I didn't even know the guy's name. I, I mean, it's just little attention paid for me on 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 that on that aspect of of Buffalo's history for sure. Okay, that's amazing. And have you have you seen like any newspaper reports, Buffalo Evening News, or any other any anywhere really, New York Times, uh, where Joseph Christopher twenty two caliber has been mentioned in relation to Peyton Gendron? No, and you know what? To be honest with you, I couldn't stomach reading anything about that story. Um, so, you know, when, when I heard the intro mention his name, I had to think twice about who the guy was. Like, I just, I can't put a name to it. I can't validate the guy. Like I'm, I've been on, you know, I've been, I've been trying to do what I can do to support, um, organizations that are working in the East side since that happened. And I paid little attention to that too. I see. I see. I definitely am paying it. You're aware he's facing 27 federal counts now he could face the death penalty yep oh, okay okay uh that's been amazing now i've told listeners that we will all have to sit and think about this because we've had i've lost count I have to go back to the beginning to anna blotto uh she also was born in western new york i believe buffalo specifically born and raised in buffalo uh matt grida yep he i had anna in a class oh he had her in a class anna as a student, student or as a student, I I was uh, I taught one semester over at UB. Um, she took my, I believe, urban geography course there, or um, some other course I taught there. But Anna was was an excellent student then, and, and her work um, in in the city, um, particularly her her work on segregation, is is very good. Is very good stuff. She didn't know who Joseph G. Christopher was. Kind of at this point, I said I told listeners. Well, she wasn't even born then. I didn't even get to hear it. Say it one more time, sir. I said she, she wasn't even born when that happened. You know, like, I guess the, you know, I'm not defending her, but, you know, people, the history of every single thing that happened in Buffalo isn't something that everyone necessarily knows. I mean, we might know about it in passing, but geez, Anna's probably 25 years old. She was born in the 90s. Um, so it's, uh, it's not surprising that she wasn't aware of who that was. Well... That would maybe be okay, but we talk to people who are your age and they lived through this and they didn't know who he was either. So at that point, yeah. no, and yeah. even beyond yeah. that, even for Anna at 25, the same thing that I told her, she put her chest out and put bass in her voice. I'm a researcher on Buffalo and racism. That's what I write about. That's what I do interviews about. That's what I publish about. <laughs> okay. At that point, the, what I've told listeners to think about since we've been talking about Joseph G. Christopher, the 22 caliber killer since P. 
Peyton Gendron's attack. We've been talking about this since 515. How important do you think this event is? We've read half of Catherine Pellinero's book. Not only just that. Now, how important do you think this event is? 22 caliber killings, Midtown Slasher to and even let me slow down because I didn't even do it correctly the whole way through. So Joseph G. Christopher, and this is why I've told listeners now we also we have to think because we've heard a whole lot of white people who are Western New York natives. They teach at Buffalo institutions and what have you. They write about Buffalo and racism and they're not informed. None of them have been informed. What do we make of this? Again, I have to start with now. How important do you think all of this is? I pulled back and I said, now, hey, you haven't, you said, Dr. Knight, you haven't been reading the coverage of Peyton Gendron. I said, hey, for two months, nobody has talked about Joseph G. Christopher. I said, hey, I think people would have a very different understanding of racism, the history of Buffalo, maybe even what it means to be white. Joseph G. Christopher, it's reported he killed, I think it's approximately 17, 18. We don't even know for reals, but I mean, approximately 17 18 black males exclusively he carved out two black males hearts in addition to killing them attacked a number of other black males who fortunately lived like really i don't even know if amazing is the right word but extraordinary set of events everything that's connected to this but specifically with peyton gendron's attack joseph christopher's first victim was a 14-year-old black male that he shot. Give us one more time. Where did you say your parents, they grew up, the house is no longer there. Where is it at? Kilhoffer. Kilhoffer and what? What's the cross street? Kilhoffer and Genesee. Joseph G. Christopher's first victim, Glenn Dunn, 14-year-old black male, was shot in the parking lot of a Topps grocery store, Genesee Street, Eastside Buffalo, September 1980. And I said, just right there, you can follow the rest of the story, boom, boom, boom. But hey, if they came out and reported in May, and the New York Times, this case was well covered, well covered for about five years. If they had reported from day one, Wow, a white supremacist killer targeted an East Buffalo Tops grocery store to kill black people again. I think a lot of people would have had to pause and really think like, wow, this happened before? I'll pause there. Does that add some, did you know? Joseph G. Christopher, 22 caliber killer. His first victim was at a Topps grocery store on Genesee in Eastside Buffalo. Nope. Listeners, so again, now we've heard from white people in Buffalo area for two months. Unanimously, they're not informed about, certainly not well informed. They have like a vague recollection or what have you. What to make of that? And again, how important do you think those book club Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific? If you've been with us, how important are these events? Maybe I'm making much ado about nothing. 
Got that one asked. Let's see. The report. Walkable and resurgent for whom? The uneven geographies of walkability in Buffalo, New York. Dr. Knight is the lead author, along with Russell Weaver and Paula Jones. This is from 2018. Uh, do you want to kind of give folks, again, for the lay folks who've not had the, the privilege of lots of great education, uh, what is the kind of the main thrust of what this here report is about? It's a simple, well, I, you know, I, maybe that's not the right term, but it's a geographical analysis of walkability across the city of Buffalo. So walkability is simply defined as um, access that someone would have based on their address to nearby amenities. So it's, it utilizes data from the website WalkScore. So any listener who's interested can go onto that website um, put your address in, you will get an index score from zero to 100. Um, 100 is, I don't know how they typology the, the value, but it's basically um, the greatest walking um, access one would have. A zero of, is obviously absolutely auto-dependent, which means you can't walk to anything, right? So urban centers and cities have historically been understood and valued given their walkability, right? That cities were dense urban economic environments where people had access to their day-to-day needs without needing to actually own an automobile. So we wanted to understand who has good walkability in the city, um, within the city's boundary. Um, And then also for neighborhoods that have relatively low compared to the city as a whole walk scores, what is the automobile ownership situation in those neighborhoods. And also, what is the racial, ethnic, demographic, um, and economic makeup of those places? And so, essentially, what we found is um, neighborhoods that have relatively high walkability are predominantly the North Buffalo, Elmwood Village, sort of center part of the city, Um, But interestingly, also are the neighborhoods with the highest automobile ownership. So in in some ways, our our sort of takeaway is those neighborhoods, walkability is really a luxury. Um, They're, you know, they're the places where predominantly white populations of of relatively higher incomes live in neighborhoods they can walk to a brewery or a Penzi Spices or one of these sort of types of stores. Um, And so walking is a luxury for them because they can afford an automobile and access anything they want in the region, and then they have the luxury of of walkability in their neighborhoods. But from a policy perspective, walkability is something that households actually need. Um, And so it doesn't necessarily have to be framed as or should be thought of as a luxury. Um, And so neighborhoods that have low automobile ownership um, and low walkability are places where policy changes need to be made. And so what we tend to find was um, two things. One is on the east side, um, it's marked by relatively low automobile ownership rates, which means people have to rely on, as you mentioned, a public transit system that is effectively ineffective and inefficient. Um, and then um, they also don't have a lot of walkable access in their neighborhood. So they're sort of got this sort of between the vice position, between the jaws of a vice position where they can't necessarily walk to everything they need um, but they also have to rely on either access to someone else's automobile or a transit system that doesn't necessarily work as well for them. And then in the in the poverty rates, there are relatively um, 
relatively high. Um, and so in neighborhoods that have relatively high poverty um, in low automobile ownership, walkable amenities should be um, relatively high, right? You should have access to the things you need. If we jump to the other side of the city on the west side, predominantly west of Richmond Avenue, um, so between Richmond and the, and the Niagara River, um, we have what I think is kind of the planner's dream. Um, it is a dense neighborhood. It's not, it's not, you don't see the vacancy and abandonment and vacant lots like you see on the east side. It is also has pockets or census tracts of, of relatively higher poverty rates than we see in Elmwood Village or North Buffalo or South Buffalo. Um, and it has relatively high walk scores. Um, so neighborhood that is um, relatively higher poverty rates, the people in that neighborhood have access to their day-to-day needs at a much greater rate than people on the west side of Buffalo um, or on the east side of Buffalo. So we have this sort of uneven reality about who has access to things in their neighborhood that they can get to on their own two feet. Um, And so disproportionately, neighborhood residents on the east side have less access from a walkable perspective to their day-to-day needs than other neighborhoods. And as you know, um, those neighborhoods are disproportionately um, Black, African-American, um, increasingly Bangladeshi, um, and, and relatively higher poverty rates. We have census tracts in the east side where the poverty rate is over 40%. So at the end of the day, our takeaway is what we've seen in the city of Buffalo in the last 10 to 15 years is this constant narrative of the cities coming back. So this, this term about resurgence. Our point is for who, Right. When we're seeing massive amounts of reinvestment in neighborhoods, where is it happening and who is it benefiting? And it traditionally tends to benefit um, already stable neighborhoods um, where the market is relatively stable, um, where interest in reinvestment is relatively stable. Um, and it's not happening in neighborhoods where um, we have disproportionately high rates of poverty, um, disproportionately high um, measures of racial segregation. Um, and we have disproportionately high um, conditions, what we would sort of classify as um, distressed, right? So vacant and abandoned housing units, lots of vacant lots, um, and limited reinvestment by public enterprise that would result in private sector reinvestment following that. Um, so our argument was just simply, you know, from a walkability standpoint, um, the resurgence narrative doesn't fit the bill um, across the entire geography of the city. Indeed. Context of white supremacy. Um, I want to drill down to specifics in the report as I do. Are you familiar uh, with the book Race, Neighborhoods, and Community Power, Buffalo Politics, 1934 to 1997 by Dr. Neil Krause? No, I I haven't read Neil's work. That one, anyway. Okay, that one. He was a guest on the program. I thought his work was important. Uh, He talked about uh, he has the word deliberate or different uh, permutations deliberately, that type of thing. Uh, But it's in there about a dozen times uh, and talking about the deliberate efforts that went into producing Buffalo's so-called segregated areas, east side and such, where black people live, where now you have all this disinvestment and low talk about zero walkability scores where you need a car incidentally 
uh, Angie Schmidt in her book right of way she talked the very point that you made like total other end of the spectrum what you said about the west side where you have white people the luxury of having a 100 walk score uh, where you have these huge vehicles and SUVs and all that where you can drive everywhere you want to and all the rest of it and if you choose as you walk to the cafe or what have you well hey easy to do as opposed to just life sake can I get to the top so I don't have to take you know five buses and hopefully don't get killed by a dump truck uh, to get to the Whole Foods that's five miles away that type of a thing yee gonna be tough drilling down specifically uh, into your report so this is on page this isn't even that long for folks if you want to check it out it's like 10 pages uh, so you can get uh, a nice little better understanding of racism in Buffalo uh, so this is on the very first page uh, you write make sure I get perhaps more problematically though is that patterns of public and private investment and into designing or enhancing walkability tend to reinforce these fragmented landscapes indeed planning and decision-making in the name of walkability has been said to invisibilize underrepresented peoples and locations as investments flow into those intra-city spaces that are already thriving stable or gentrifying that means white people are coming rather than more distressed areas where resident mobility is comparatively limited I thought that was kind of an important right from the beginning but invisibilize I said Dr. Frank E. Dobson Jr. Buffalo native his book rendered invisible all about the 22 caliber killer and racism in Buffalo uh, what do you mean invisibilize yeah so that is you know it's in quotes so we pulled that from the cited work of uh, in the in the in the article um, invisibilize essentially from my perspective um, means that when public policy focuses on where best to invest in neighborhoods, um, some places become non-starters for that investment. So they are essentially almost policy non-options, right? So um, when you think about, you know, if we give you an example, you know, we, we've seen this um, investment in a cycle, um, not cycle track, a sort of protected bike lane on Niagara Street, um, that runs essentially from the almost northernmost part of the city to almost a downtown. Um, you know, that's a neighborhood that has seen a lot of private sector investment and it's not invisible anymore. Um, and so what's happened is um, with private sector investment along that corridor, generally revitalizing old factories and turning them into really expensive lofts, um, that becomes a place where the public sector then seeks to double down on the uh, the public sector seeks to double down on the private sector investment to catalyze more reinvestment because the place or that space is already visible to the to the public to the to the private sector dollars. So the, the intent is then um, to double down on that investment to try to catalyze more reinvestment. Spaces that don't see a lot of um, 
private sector reinvestment are essentially invisible in that conversation about where we put this bike lane. In the context of this report and the east side and their lack of walkability, it would be the black people who have been invisibilized with regard to policy and planning and that sort of thing. Is that accurate? Yes. Yes. Right on. Uh, wanted to, before I even get to some of the other important aspects of the report on differences between black people and non-white people who are non-black, uh, because I thought that was super important as well. Uh, our victim in New Jersey, uh, VR in New Jersey, did you have a question for Dr. Jason Knight? You should be with us, sir. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, hey, how you doing? Um, uh, can I be, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, okay. Sir. All right. Um, I just have a, I have a, yeah, okay, I have a question. Do you know who, um, John Wayne Gacy is? Oh, yeah, another, another serial killer. Right, right. Can you give me any detail? What region of the world of the United States did he perform these killings? Not entirely certain. Okay, not a joke. But um, Gus asked about, as it relates to Buffalo, so he asked about Joseph G. Christie. So do you see the problem with that? Like that, you know what I'm saying? Like you know you know who Ted Bundy is, right? Yeah. Okay. So the fact that Joseph G. Christopher escapes every guest, even people that specializes in Buffalo as it relates to race, do you see that? Do you do you see that as a problem? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, like I, I, you know, I was asked to come on this show and talk about um, walkability question. Um, I am not an expert in racism. I don't necessarily study racism. So to to ask me if I know every instance, every serial killer, um, is someone who's not a sociologist um, or in criminal justice or studies deviance. Um, and it seems to be, you know, I, I would argue sort of make undercutting um, where my focus actually is um, in in this space, and it's not serial killers and going Obviously, I'm not involved in um, crime, law enforcement, and those types of things around those issues. So it's like, in some ways, feel like it's sort of like gotcha conversation about, um, you know, trying to kind of make it seem like I don't know enough to sort of the work that I'm doing, which is my work to be focused entirely on race. Um, so, right. yeah, do I go popular culture and read it and pushed out to us? Sure. Do I dig deeply into those types of things? No. The stuff I dig deeply into is the policies that I'm interested in. Um, and so, you know, that's the sort of kind of where I am as a, as a sort of researcher. I mean, I, I'm not Anna. Anna stood here and said she's studies racism. I don't study racism. Right. So I asked that I asked that question because it does relate to the um the walkability factor and you basically like how black people are invisible, not only when it comes to access to um walkability walkability as, as relates to space, but 
make that same correlation to the fact that even in areas of, of being murdered, like mass murdered, you see like the same pattern. So it wasn't a got you moment, but it was making a correlation between just basically like black people being invisible in, in spaces, even spaces that you research. That's, that's what the question was. It wasn't a got you question. Yeah. And I think you're, you know, you're, it's interesting because like the invisibility point is like, how policy makes these neighborhoods or spaces invisible. But on the other hand, if you think about, you know, what happened in, on May 14th, um, that invisibility from a policy perspective has resulted in someone identifying a neighborhood that has historically been disenfranchised through white supremacist and racist public policy that's created segregation at such a high level that it is known to people outside the region where they're not invisible. That population was not invisible for that person. He's like, okay, this, we've had decades of disinvestment, not thinking like this, but decades of disinvestment in racial and economic segregation on the east side of Buffalo. That's not invisible to me. That's a target. And that's where the fucking problem is. Got you. So, okay, and you spoke about investments in um, certain communities. So do you think these investments are, are going to change these policies, meaning like, you know, mass investments, people might even refer to it as gentrification. Um, how how much will investments change it? Like east in, in this this sort of city or the, the the space east of Main Street, like where are we talking? And I'm not like trying to dodge the question. Yes, the on, the, on the east side on the on the east side of uh on the east side of Buffalo where mainly uh, black people are like because you said that 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 if I'm not mistaken, that place is going through mass investments. Are they are they not not you know in them areas? Um, there there you know, there's an, there's an investment, but you also said that those investments seem to benefit people with more stable communities. So how would that change and affect black people? Yeah, it's a good question, right? So you know, from a from a perspective of someone who's interested in the sort of physical built environment and housing and how we house households and what that means for, for households in terms of opportunity, um, more investment in the East Side or East Buffalo is something we've all been advocating forever. And the reality is, for most of us, we've kind of just been ignored, right? So when we write a paper about walkability, we say, we got to do better, right? No one called me about this paper six months ago. And then we tried to push it out to get some visibility for this paper. But as you, as we sort of been talking about, the paper's been invisible. Like we couldn't get any traction on it. Um, so a lot of us did our work, Anna, um, Dr. Taylor, Dr. Raja, a lot of people have been grinding away trying to support, you know, I'm an analyst, so I'm trying to support um, public policy through an analytical lens. Um, we've been invisible. Our work has been invisible. And now it's been, it's been lifted up. Um, and so what you're seeing now, what I think is, I think reactionary tokenism from Kathy Hochul, right? So she's like, Oh, I'm going to throw, you know, $25 million um, at the East side or, you know, $25 million doesn't go far, right? It's not, it's not the Buffalo billion, right? So the prior governor had a Buffalo billion um, slush fund that he doled money out to, you know, and, you know, almost a, almost, you know, like 750 million of that went to Elon Musk to build a solar panel factory, right? Um, so, you know, it, it didn't go into places that would have the most um, impact. Um, and and that, that's historically been the east side. Um, and so what is the, what is the, 
long-term outcome of investment on the east side is a tricky question. Like, I feel like it's warranted clearly and undeniably, but my my concern is always this. When we see massive investment, right, when we take a place that's invisible and we make it visible, right, we basically tell the private market it's okay, right, in quotes, okay to invest here. That's when the people come out of the woodwork and start buying up properties, investing in that space. And if we do not have the policies in place to provide quality, affordable housing for existing residents to stay in that neighborhood as conditions improve, then we're not doing it right. Right. And I'll tell you right now, the city of Buffalo does not have um, any policies in place that thwart displacement when neighborhood conditions improve. So what you would, if, if all things if a trillion dollars showed up and reinvested in the east side, absent policies to keep people in their places, it'll get gentrified, period, point blank, right? And so my bigger concern long term is how do we keep that – how do we keep people in that neighborhood that want to stay there for family reasons, economic reasons, cultural reasons, so whatever the case may be. Kids are in the school. They don't want to pull them out. How do we keep them in that space absent um, you know, rent control policies or right-to-buy policies um, an inclusionary zoning policy that requires a private sector developer to set aside a number of affordable units um, in a given um, project for, for affordable housing um, needs. If we don't have those policies in place, then any investment in those neighborhoods is, is potentially displacing, which is a long Okay, answer, last right. question. <laughs> right. Last okay. question. So, but if, but I, again, like I said, I know that you, you don't specialize in race. And again, these aren't got you questions. I mean, but but doesn't it? You can't escape race because your work and everything that you describe. If you change the east side of Buffalo, and just name it South South Chicago or any area that's concentrated with black people, they're going through the same exact thing. So you can't escape race, even if you're not uh, an expert in race. Well, right, is right. That, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, you know, I don't, I, my, my, I'm not like ducking, I'm not trying to duck the racism question at, at all. Um, what I am saying is if we do not put the policies in place to support on the east side, which is a predominantly African-American neighborhood with a growing Bangladeshi population, right? And so wall to wall in that neighborhood is predominantly non-white households. If we do not have policies in place to keep them there in the event that massive amounts of capital flow into that space, those policies are racist because they are disenfranchising an entire cohort of citizens in favor of capital. And that by in and of itself is discriminatory and racist. Okay. Thank you. Can answer my question context of white supremacy much obliged victim in New Jersey uh, the other folks who dialed in uh, before I nab them Dr. Knight uh, what is a gotcha question what is that specifically well when you ask an expert something that they're not an expert in oh okay you said you're like generations deep in western New York yes 
Yeah, but that doesn't make me a historian of everything racist in the city of Buffalo or Western New York. For sure. For sure. I don't think I asked you about everything that happened. I just asked about this event, which again, that's why I asked listeners the question, so how important do we think this event is? Now, even specifically with what we talked about today, gave me enough time told folks like oh man now we've been on this two months talking about this every day and all these folks in buffalo like oh man i should sound like rick james is my cousin i got family in erie county so (laughs) from Catherine pelinero's book absolute madness we talked about walkability right like if you got a racist killer who is stalking black people that might affect the uh, impact the walkability score She wrote, I remember this is chapter three. Joseph McCoy had no reason to fear walking the streets. He made a habit of walking every day, setting out from his home on Pierce Avenue in Niagara Falls for a leisurely stroll. McCoy had been unemployed for the past two years, but he was not one to sit at home. Always an active man, fit and muscular. McCoy had been a boxer in his younger days. He was now 43 years old, a lifelong bachelor, living a quiet life and staying close to his siblings and elderly parents. I'm skipping one little paragraph. They continue at 9 a.m. Joe McCoy was walking alone on a section of Cleveland Avenue, many blocks away from the river and the tourists. A motorist who was stopped at a red light noticed McCoy approach the intersection of Cleveland and 11th Street a white man came up behind McCoy and grabbed him around the neck, pulling his head downward. And he goes on there to give the attack. But it was a number of the victims out walking, just literally not that far from their house. And a number of black people afterward were talked about fearful of walking in Dr. Frank Dobson's book. Black male is walking and a white man gives him a ride like you don't want to be out here walking. That's crazy, man. What's wrong with you? certain as I said a racist killer stalking black people that does impact the walkability score Joseph McCoy he wasn't the only one it was a number Uh, retired fighter retired firefighter in Florida did you have a question for Dr. Jason Knight yes greetings everyone Uh, hi Greetings. Uh, I uh, I heard you use the word uh, capitalism uh, more than once. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, I don't use the word myself, uh, but when I hear it, uh, uh, it makes me think of a shield that a white person uses uh, to uh, substitute from the practice of racism and white supremacy. Uh, does that sound correct to you? I mean, if that's, if that's how you feel and you interpret it, then, you know, I'm not one to quibble with, with your interpretation. No, what I was asking you, does that sound correct to you? That, that I wasn't talking about me. I, I was just mentioning that to 
to get an answer from you. Do you think that that is correct? I, I think capitalism is the driving force of our economy and our policy decisions. And when we understand... Okay, okay go ahead. Okay. Do, do white people control capitalism? Historically, yeah. Okay. Uh, so that still doesn't sound like a shield that white people use to avoid talking about to avoid talking about racism. They would say, well, you know, it's something called capitalism that creates it. And it's actually is a person or a group of people who have power. Does that make sense to you, sir? Okay. You gotta, but here's the thing. You do you do you have do you have a solution for that? A solution, solution to capitalism? Yeah, I don't. No, no. <laughs> well, we've already went through went over what capitalism apparently is as a shield, and it comes it comes up with white people practicing racism. In okay. a refined manner, okay, if, but, if but you let will. Just, let me just let me just couch this point with, with. I understand what you're saying. What the city of Buffalo has been overseen for the last 16 years by an African American mayor. The council is historically in that time period also predominantly African American. They have utilized undeniably neoliberal policy, capitalist policy, to seek reinvestment in neighborhoods that are already stable in revitalizing as their primary policy objective. What's happened on the east side in the last 16 years falls at the feet of the current mayor. He has avoided that neighborhood like no one else. And so my point is not to say that he's racist. My point is to say that he's working within a capitalistic system that sets the agenda for where money gets distributed. And if your point is that that is racist, then I can understand that. In many ways, his hands are tied. He puts his palms out and asks the state for money, and they put conditions on where that money goes, right? And they turn to their donors, and they invest in the places where it's visible, right? So the point that was made in the, in the, in the earlier paper, um, or in the, in the beginning part of the paper. Um, so that was, you know, that's the, the point I was sort of trying to make is that the system, which you're, you know, which I agree is, is undeniably racist. Um, the system is set up such that the racism is embedded in the decision-making system because disproportionately the history of racism decades ago disinvested in these neighborhoods to create the current condition that they're in. And that Okay, I, I, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, for cutting you off because you, you, you kind of like answered my question. Uh, but, but I heard something in your, in your answer. You said something about a neo-what? Ne Neoliberal. Okay, uh, what in the hell is that? Uh, but but I don't. You don't have to answer that question. That that's. It, it, no no. So I don't know what I don't. I don't know what that that means at all. Means I, I stay I stay in a. 
Oh, hold, excuse me, excuse me, sir. I stay in an area. I stay in an area where about 90% of the population in South Florida in this area that's called Miami Gardens is non-white people who are racially classified as black. But the person who controls Miami Gardens is the owner of the Miami Dolphins, which apparently, uh, I don't know too much about it, but I would suspect that he he was going to... Questions? Yes, yes. Uh, So that's, that's all. That's all I have. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. You can give your uh, commentary perhaps before we wrap things up. I just want to point something out. Now, see, this goes all the way back to the very beginning. Dr. Knight, and this we've pointed this out, words are so important. Have to keep saying that counter-racism is about being scientific with words. Dr. Knight keeps making an adjustment, many actually, but I'm just pointing out one that's critical right now and saying the system is racist. I've never said that. Not one time today. What I've been saying, the system of white supremacy racism. We should just go back to the uh, beginning and make a retraction because Dr. Knight does not agree with my definition. He keeps saying the driver of policy in this part of the world and what have you is capitalism. That's what he thinks. And I'm saying, no, what is driving all areas of people activity throughout the known universe, not just the U.S., is white supremacy racism. And it's not embedded in things that were happening in the past. It's what individuals classified as white do right now and words that's one of the crucial components I'd say what Dr. Knight just that there the system is racist so that you think the system incorporates lots of things the system of capitalism or what have you no this is not the context of capitalism this is the context of white supremacy system of white supremacy racism and there is a substantial difference when you grasp racism white supremacy is what is dominating everything as opposed to all these other things are happening and I guess racism might be a part of that that is a substantial substantial difference and I just point to when I said at the beginning just make that clear if you have a different view you can just say that other people who dialed in with a hand up uh, Z's mom did you have a question for Dr. Knight hi can I be heard yes ma'am thank you uh, thank you listeners and callers thank you Gus and thank you Dr. Knight um, the question I had was just about the um, I guess job prospects in Buffalo seeing as you said it was segregated so what typically type of work do the black residents of Buffalo, um, what industries um, do they work in? And can you compare that to the white residents in the predominantly white areas? Thank you. 
Um, you know, I think one of the, the key challenges that we face in, in Buffalo is exactly to your to your point. The, the non-white population, particularly in the, in the city, um, you know, generally works in the low-wage um, service and retail sectors, um, and there's certainly a, a cohort of, of, of white population that work in those um, in those same sectors. Um, what we don't see in the Sibian region is a large share of um, professional and technical jobs um, being held by uh, by non-white um, uh, individuals. So we, we certainly have a wage gap in, in the region, which um, which is tied directly to education and then um, job prospects and the, and the jobs that we, we invest, um, you know, dollars in, in creating these jobs are, unfortunately, in our region, largely service and retail. Okay, thank you. And uh, I had one last question. Um, you went and you you wrote about walkability. So, what are the steps taken to make to take a city from being walkable to have a low amount of walkability? And how can people who live in those cities be aware of the slow kind of? Um, slowly degrading the ability to walk and maneuver a city easily. Okay, so I think one of the challenges in in, in Buffalo with, with low walk scores and, and low walkability is the disconnect between the built environment, um, and the sort of disaggregation of the built environment on the east side over time. So if you're interested, go um, look at some aerial images of, of the east side. You know, somebody might walk um, out of their front door and, and walk past nine or ten vacant lots till they get to a, an adjoining side street. Um, so you have to walk farther um, to get the things in those neighborhoods. And as neighborhood as the number of households decrease, um, the number of businesses that can survive with less households decreases as well. And it's sort of this vicious cycle where um, household loss, population loss, results in the loss of businesses that people need to walk to. Um, so it's really a, a function of the built environment on the east side. There's just not enough built environment um, for those amenities versus if you go to the west side where the vast majority of the built um, environment, the, the housing stock is, is relatively intact. Um, and so um, there's a lot more businesses there because there's a lot more um, households there, if that makes sense. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Obliged Z's mom. Uh, I thought our call, our mom in Michigan was gonna dial in, but I see the other folks, so I'll take them in their stead. Our mom in Michigan, her question that she would normally ask, uh, Dr. Knight, who do you think is more informed about white supremacy racism, meaning what it is, how it works, why black people on the east side have such a tough time, that sort of thing, why white people on the west side have such great walk scores even though they have all these great cars and don't need it uh, who do you think is more informed about all of that what racism is how it works do you think people classified as white are more informed or do you think people who are not white are more informed uh, I think people that are non-white right I mean they're, they're the ones that 
to face the outcomes and the ramifications of, of that um, without without question. I would I would just sort of make a clarification. The, the west side of Buffalo is not the Elmwood Village, which is predominantly white. The west side is our most diverse neighborhood. If you look in the report, um, I believe in that in that specific or uh, that particular paper, there was a racial dot map. Um, the west side is our most diverse neighborhood. It is. Um, I can't say equally, but it is um, large percentages of non-white population, um, Asian population, and Hispanic, um, Latino populations on on that neighborhood. So it is it is when I said before it is a planner's dream. It is a diverse, walkable neighborhood, um, urban environment that's relatively intact, where people have access to the things um, that they need. It's the Elmwood Village that's sort of the wedge or the middle part of the city that splits the east side from the west side. That is the High income um, walking is a luxury neighborhood. Much of I say that all the time. Strive for accuracy. Thank you for the correction. Although that did, I told you all I wanted to get to the uh, difference between the black people and the non-black, non-white people. Because as he just said, some of them do live in areas with great walkability score so that is one point I did want to make but you said non-white people are more informed because they have to experience it and, and what have you I'm just trying to make sure I got that correct yes sir yeah I think it's, I think you know what white people can read about it we, anybody can read about something right I think it, it, maybe it's just my own perception but I can read about something but if I can experience something I feel like it expanded my understanding of that and so um, so unless you've experienced the outcomes of, of racism, then I, I just don't feel like um, I just don't feel like the white population is the is the sort of go to. And I, I, clearly, I'm not. Um, you guys have you guys have hammered me pretty good. Um, clearly, I'm not that that person that can speak to it um, intelligently because I don't I don't experience it right. Um, and so I, I think that. The conversations, it's, it's important to have a conversation, I think, with someone like myself. But, um, you know, Dr. Dr. Taylor at UB would be a great person to bring on your show because um, I think he has spent a lot of his work and a lot of his effort on, on, on the east side. Um, and he was a former professor of mine long, long ago when I was a master's in, in planning student. Um, he, um, he would have an, an interesting um an interesting take on a, on a lot of what you're after. Um, he he um, he wrote um, wrote a report that I reviewed for him and helped him very minor um, and released prior to May 19th. Um, uh, I can't remember the full title, um, but it was an update of his Black Buffalo report from the early 1990s. It was like a 25 year update, mid 90s. Um, Henry's a great resource and, and someone at UB I would I would think you might be interested in hearing from as well. I actually read that report. I've quoted from it a mm -hmm. number of times. Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor, to give his full name, uh, he's been mentioned on this program so many times over the last two months. It's like he's already been here in spirit. We've talked about him so much. Same good things. Nobody's had anything bad to say about him. Uh, I've read from, the, I think I read from the very report that I guess maybe you gave a, a slight little nudge in a constructive manner uh, for him to get finished up. Let me see. So is this the Black in Buffalo, a late century progress report, 1996? Is that the one you're... Yeah, that's the, the 
the updated one. I don't. Ha- I never got a final copy of it. Um, I just have a draft, but I'm pretty sure um, it's titled the same, but just says like an uh, an update or whatever. I yeah. see. That's I've read. From and I would that. also mm-hmm. let's see, go go ahead. My yeah. No, his his daughter um, wrote the book "Race for Profit: How Banks in the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Home Ownership," um, and she's basically that book became a bestseller. She's very um, her her star has risen very very high um, nationally, and she's speaking here I think on Thursday um, uh, at an event here um, in this in the city of Buffalo. She that book's a good you know sort of pumping both the Taylor's work. That's a good book for, for those that are interested in, um, you know, the questions that were raised about, um, you know, who controls capital, right? Um, somebody asked earlier about, um, or mentioned earlier that, um, that the white people control the, the, the financial system or the banking system, whatever the case may be. She, she's a really good, uh, really good book, um, on that topic of, um, race banking and, um, and home ownership in, in America. Another good, another good, uh, source to, to sort of dig into and, and, for me to sort of promote, even though I get nothing for it. <laughs> right on. What reading more important than watching television? Uh, let's see. Our caller at one one five nine one one five nine. Did you have a question for Doctor Knight? Greetings, guests, and greetings, Doctor Knight. Um, Doctor Knight, who is responsible for? Um, improving the areas where um, non-white people live and making them as um, uh, pleasure, um, as pleasant and constructive as the white areas? Um, well, it's a multi-layered answer, I, I think. I mean, ultimately, you know, from a planner's perspective, local government set the rules as it relates to land use um, in zoning and the investment in any given geography. Um, so in some way they play a really crucial role in neighborhood change, right. As an institutional entity, but I would argue that residents, and we're seeing a lot of it right now in Buffalo, well, significant pushback. Um, I would say collective action from residents who live in that space, um, um, is a, is a vital need in, in America today as we continue to see a devolution um, of democracy um, in the political arena, and, and I and, and I think more collective, vocal action, grassroots work um, at the neighborhood level, and demanding change instead of sitting and expecting the government to do it for you is is, is the only pathway forward. So it's a collective. It should be a partnership. Um, in, in many cities, it, it may be more so than it is here in, here in Buffalo. But um, to me, it is a it's a collective. Um, as a collective, should be collective effort from neighborhood stakeholders and, and, and local government. Is it logical for me to suspect the areas where non-white people exist are, are going to get worse before they get better if all this um, bureaucratic stuff has to happen before they improve? I mean, if we're talking about the the east side, I mean, I, 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 I have my fingers crossed that we're at the bottom, if that makes sense, if that's maybe the correct term, which is I don't expect it to get worse. Um, it's seen a slight uptick in population, again, predominantly Bangladeshi households. Um, 
and when you start to see a population uptick, then it becomes more visible, right? The sort of visible question again. Um, and so, um, you know, my hope is it gets better um, and investment continues to flow. It's a shitty way to have a neighborhood get some important consideration um, from the community in general um, through a, the actions of a white supremacist. It's absolutely horrible. It's the same reason why my, you know, a lot of our work has been ignored for a long period of time, and now it now people are interested in it because oh, it's in this space that this thing happened. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think the bottom is, or think and hope the bottom. So it's like some cynicism, some optimism um, that the bottom is here, um, and that the initial investments that we're seeing um, can help. But as I said earlier, I also think that additional policies and rules and regulations need to be in place to support. Um, what is equitable reinvestment in those neighborhoods and, and provide people the opportunity um, to live there, to work there, to play there. Um, and if they, if they so choose, and they're not just become displaced by um, a flood of change in the neighborhood that's positive, um, and, and they're forced out into another neighborhood that looks like the current one. Okay, and my final question. Um, do you have any uh, suggestions for um, non-white people and white people who, um, and for ways that we can improve these areas that we uh, we grow in, or for white people who want to help the non-white people out of squalor, what can they do? Well, I think, you know, I think we, I sort of had this, converse, I had this conversation with a number of people. You know, we, we continue to divide ourselves in this country, and it's it's not the pathway forward. Um, we need at the local level in these neighborhoods, we need unifiers. We, we need people to come together collectively um, to support each other and support neighborhood change and neighborhood improvement. And if you don't live there, we have a lot of people in Buffalo that have historically not lived in the East side that have tried to help in the East side um, and worked in the East side. We need more of it. We need more across the aisle engagement with each other and treating each other as individuals and people um, and not treating each other as, you know, fill in the blank, right? And so if we can work together um, in these spaces collectively with, you know, we need government as much as we might not like that, um, I think we can we can get the, this is the sort of optimistic approach, we can get the outcomes that we, um, we aim for if we continue to divide um, and allow ourselves to, I think, to be divided. Um, I think our, I, my, my vision is a little bit less optimistic than if we come together. Thank you, Dr. Knight, and thank you guys for taking my call. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, before we get our caller, I guess it's Kwaku on the Skype, uh, Skype, sorry, Skype line. Uh, that's when I hear commentary like that, where there's a lot of rhetoric uh, and what have you, that's when I go back to everything has to be evaluated. Does this make sense based on evidence? Logic, that's where I asked that question. So is there any evidence that a substantial number of white people are going to voluntarily, permanently desist from the practice of racism. Dr. Knight said no. This is also one where I go to... I, did, I, 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 I misunderstood the question. Oh, he mis... You I, need, I, do you want to do that one again? Do you want to do that one again? <laughs> no, I, I think that there is a large cohort that are willing to do that. Undeniably. If you look at if you look at the city of Buffalo and you look at the organizations, like, so today the city of Buffalo council voted against 
um, a redistricting plan that was drawn up by a multi-faceted, diverse group of constituents that were predominantly white um, from neighborhoods across the city, challenging the city's redistricting and gerrymandering as a protectionist, anti-democratic, and racist mapping exercise. And the people that were leading that charge um, is an organization called Our City Action Buffalo, um, and it is predominantly white people. So we have that institutional capacity and that stakeholder capacity in the city um, that's really risen to the top in the last in the last few years, um, particularly as you know what, what really incubated and, and sort of initiated the walkability paper was the constant newspaper headlines to say the city is back. It's 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 we we're undergoing a resurgence, and our question was for who, right? And so we're not the only ones, and there are a lot of white people in the city of Buffalo um, working to dismantle racism and, and white supremacy in, in the city. There's no question about it in my mind. Mm. Okay. Uh, that in and of itself is suspicious. Folks can go back and listen and, you know, do you hear, do you hear crackling and static and distortion uh, in the line uh, when that question was asked? Because I went back and repeated his response. I mean, this is like, ooh, we. Somebody comes back to confirm you give an answer. No, the, and then they, hang on a second. No, hang a on a second. Hang on a second because you're interrupting. I didn't interrupt you. I'm just saying, I got it. You said you didn't understand the question. I got all that. I'm saying for listeners, that is suspicious. You can think personally about yourself now how many times does somebody ask you a question and then come back and confirm is this your answer yes and then you come back an hour later on a question that is important whoa I didn't understand the the question let me change that around and give the exact opposite answer process same way that I asked you and you're interrupting me I have not interrupted you at all please do not interrupt I will give you an opportunity if you need to add something sir hang on no I'm not because I let you give your updated answer and I need to give my response now to what I think about that and then if you have more do not interrupt because that I suspect is a white person practicing racism to just talk all over non-white person anytime they want to what I was saying uh, for non-white people, the same way I asked you to evaluate, now how important are the 22 caliber killings? Place about because it might be that I place too much importance on that. That could be true. That's one I also want you to think on, changing your answer to that one, and I need to make sure that I get in, even getting in what you just said right there. That does not constitute evidence of white people being committed to end white supremacy racism at all. Did you have commentary you needed to add, Dr. Knight? No, I I, I, I was not an intentional re-answering of the question. There was a term in the question that I misinterpreted twice. Um, if you reread the question, I will I will tell you where I got tripped up. The question was slippery to me, and I misspoke. It was not intentional. So could you reread the question? 
the question was slippery. Woo! Yeah, Metaphors. it's almost like a double negative. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I'm going to pause just to make sure because we had one more question. I told them I was going to get their question in, and then we got off on all this. So I'm going to stick to my word, and then I'll give my slippery question one more time. Uh, so, Kwaku, thank you for your patience. Did you have a question for Dr. Knight? Uh, greetings. Uh, I hope I can be heard. Uh, thank you, Gus. Uh, thank you, Dr. Knight. Uh, my Whoa, your volume is got very low. I can, I mean, it's like a, a whisper. Can you, I don't know if you maybe can get closer to your microphone or turn your uh, volume up maybe or speak louder, maybe all three. Is that better? Yes, yes, much better. Yes, stay at that volume. Okay. Uh, I got to figure that out because I keep having that problem. But anyway, my, my question is, um, I suspect this question was kind of asked before, but for clarity, I'll just ask it again for myself. Um, can you provide a suggestion for how non-white people can improve walkability in their so-called neighborhoods that does not involve uh, con- coming in contact with people classified as white? Hmm. I mean, y- you... You can you the only way you really can pull that off um, in a, in a neighborhood that is predominantly um, non-white. Um, you, to me, you need you still need government intervention. So um, because remember, governments impact investments in transportation. So bikeability, walkability, public transportation, auto transportation, right? So all of those things are public decision making um so is so is zoning decisions or planning decisions um so in theory if you have a neighborhood that is entirely non-white and you have a public policy elected official system and planning department that is entirely non-white then you can come together and do that um i just don't um or you could if you're just a neighborhood organization and you're entirely um and it's an entirely non-white um entirely non-white neighborhood you could do grassroots organization and those types of issues, but um, and try to raise capital and increase capacity for um, for undertaking such work. But at the end of the day, as I sort of said, you still have to engage with the institutional actors in that space. Um, and in that case, it's invariably going to be um, not necessarily all non-white people. I see. So uh, essentially what you're saying is that uh, – as it is currently, non-white people cannot really achieve that without coming in contact with, with white people. Is that correct? Well, I mean, obviously there's probably hypothetical cases where that could happen, but as currently constituted, um, all of the actors that are engaged in what walkability really is, which is the amenities, so the businesses and all the things that are necessary to make the walk score go up, right? So grocery stores, doctors, dentists, all those types of things. But that is a economic stakeholder. So those are economic stakeholders. You have business stakeholders. Um, you have public stakeholders. You have the likelihood of doing all of that in a community that is entirely and dealing only with people that are non-white um, seems impossible to me. I see. Okay, thank you. Um, so, I guess non non. So essentially, people classified as white, I suspect that they are fully aware of the walkability 
uh, walkability is associated with like so-called socioeconomic determinants of health. So low walkability scores and these drastically affect non-white people and their life expectancy. And I suspect white people classified as white are very aware of that. So what evidence suggests that people classified as white are working to improve the walkability for non-white people? Well, it, you know, it, it's, the answer may be twofold, right? The first is um, I think you're giving white people too much credit when, you, when it comes to walkability. The vast majority of the white population owns an automobile and only thinks about walkability from a real estate perspective. So if you go on like a Zillow or a Redfin, they promote, they push the walk score on any house you look at. It's walks, the walk score is actually capitalized in real estate prices, right? Um, and so from that perspective, the white population isn't thinking about walk score unless they're out there to buy walk score, right? So they're out there to buy the walkable luxury and the amenity that comes with those neighborhoods and those spaces. Um, so I, you know, I think that that's the way walk score is interpreted and understood by the, the population, um, the population in, in general. Um, and what was the second part of the question? I, my question was, what evidence suggests that that white people are working to improve the walkability of non people? Yeah, so I mean, as I said before, in the city of Buffalo, um, the organizations that are working around, this is just in our case, and I can't speak about it nationally, um, the, the organizations that are working around um, increasing pedestrian safety, bicycle safety, and walkability in neighborhoods are organizations that are either headed by or include um, people that are white. Um, and so that engagement is happening. So it's a difference between institutions and common average everyday residents, right? So um, it's the institutions and their leadership, um, like Go, Go Bike and Buffalo Bicycle Organization um, advocates for biking. Uh, the Colored, Bur Colored Girls Bicycle Club um, is led by a great African-American um, student at UB who advocates for bike and pedestrian work um, on the east side. So you have multiple um, sorts of types of stakeholders and entities working on it that aren't entirely um, white or entirely black. Okay. Uh, thank you. And then I just have one more question, and then uh, Gus, I would appreciate if you could just mute my line. Uh, so you said that I am giving white people too much credit for walkability. Uh, so... As, as I understand it, white pe people classified as white, they largely decide uh, policy, urban planning, et cetera. Uh, do you think it is, do you think, do you believe through policy and urban planning, people classified as white control where non-white people are allowed to live, work, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's clearly instances um, where exclusionary zoning provisions um, you know, in, in our region, again, um, suburban exclusion um, limits the mobility of lower income households in our region. And that's coupled to a transit, public transit system that also doesn't get out to the suburbs regularly. Um, so the, the, the public transit land use system in our region, which includes in Erie County, 44 different municipalities, um, those 44 different municipalities set up their land use regulations, um, in many cases, in an exclusionary fashion, which is um, intentionally limiting access to those neighborhoods or those communities um, for people of lower incomes. 
and, and disproportionately what you have in the city of Buffalo um, in our region is by limiting access to a community for low and moderate income households, you're disproportionately limiting access to people that are non-white. So basically you create a white exclusive suburban enclave of high wealth um, and you limit the mobility of, of lower income households in the region, which invariably and disproportionately are, are non-white. Okay, so um, there, there's a, a lot of words and I kind of didn't understand but was so basically you're saying yes 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 yeah so i can try to explain it a little bit simpler every single local government so a city a town or a village in new york state um can set the rules as they see fit with how building happens in their community so in our wealthy suburban communities they require very large lots that the houses go on um which then drives up the lot cost, and then it drives up the house cost. So in those communities in our region, those are three-quarter of a million-dollar houses. Well, in the city of Buffalo, a three-quarter of a million-dollar house is top 10% of the market, right? So if you're a, if a community only builds that type of housing, um, it's excluding all people that can't afford it. And when you do that in Buffalo, you're excluding a large portion of the non-white community because they are disproportionately impoverished, if that clarifies it. I see. Um, Gus, I actually thought of another question, if I could go ahead and ask You that. said that like three questions ago. There are other people with a question, so this is like for real, for real, last question. Okay. Yeah, and I can't answer much longer anyway. Much appreciated. Thank you, Gus. Uh, I'll work on that as well. Uh, so I live in the area of the world known as California, and there's been a lot of talk of building multi multi-family housing and and zoning and and stuff like that um what what should i be looking out for when in terms of urban planning when when they when there's a lot of discussions about that yeah so you want the the, the most affordable housing that we can build is multi-family so a community that in the some of the suburban communities in our county don't even permit it so you're immediately excluding someone who can only rent. So what you were looking for in California is zoning codes that permit the construction of multifamily housing structures, um, which should drive down prices. And so that's, that's the way the zoning code should work in all communities, actually. Every community should permit multifamily as, um, as, a, as a legal right. Um, but it turns out many of our suburban communities just don't. They just privilege single-family home ownership. Um, and we know the history of that. All right, thank you. And we can get our final caller in. Uh, caller 0356, last four digits, 0356. Did you have a question for Dr. Knight? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings to the host, greetings to the callers, listeners, uh, and the guest, Dr. Knight. Um, I had two questions. My first one is relating to your answer to the question, who was more informed about how racism works? And your answer was that non-white people, black people, or let's say the victim is more informed. Could, that, could you get some more clarity on that? Because I'm, I'm confused about your answer, because logically that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, to my 
understanding, we can learn about something from a textbook perspective, right? We can be told that something is racist or discriminatory, and we can all come to some understanding of what those are, right? So if you walk into a bank and you're um, a non-white person, it's 1950, and you get turned around at the door and basically told you, we're not even, you can't even apply for a mortgage because we are going to outright deny you because you are non-white. Um, the experience component of that, I think, is more, adds more to the understanding of racism for those that are affected by it. I'm not saying that white people don't understand it. I think it's just more impactful and more understood because of the experiential nature of those that are afflicted by, um, by racism. That was what I was sort of getting at. It's like, I don't know what it's like okay, to be a millionaire, but I can read about it. Right? Yes, that's yes. Great example. My second question is: so, by that response that you gave, that the victim is more informed because we experience it. I thought the question was who is more informed about how it works. If the victim is being told something that you can't get this because of that, you have to. The person saying is the one that's informed because they have the statutes and codes that enforce it. That's that's my point. Like, how can it be that the victim knows more, especially in terms of housing and things that you specialize in? How are the people right. of the east side more informed than you are? That's my. That does not like well, make any sense to me. And thank you for yeah, your time. So we, I'm you. No, no, I appreciate it. So I guess the, the there's a there's a dividing line, right? So the, the dividing line is between. Do I understand all that stuff? And am I informed on about how redlining worked, how discrimination worked, how restrictive covenants worked, um, how blockbusting worked? Yeah, I am because those are public policy issues. Um, and, and certainly institutions that employ those tactics are very well informed of how they work. I'm saying the average rank and file person. So where the line gets drawn, the, I mean, I teach, I teach white kids quite often. They didn't, they don't know that, restrictive covenants existed they didn't know that blockbusting existed they didn't know that redlining existed so the the, the average white person um doesn't understand racism in the depth that someone who's an academic might or someone who's experienced it i guess that's the differentiation okay i guess that got his question much obliged sir for your question uh dr knight this is a quick one how old was peyton gendron Um, 18 knew enough about Buffalo concentrated by that zip code that's where I will go just like Joseph G. Christopher before we let you out of here um, I will get my slippery question just so you can make sure you get your response in but I wanted to be true to what I said about the uh, distinction between the non-white non-black people and the black people in Buffalo so not even flipping too far ahead in your report this is on page 3 uh, you write the segregation evident on the east side stands in contrast to the city's west side which appears to be a diverse neighborhood that includes a fast growing southeast and south Asian immigrant and refugee population I'm skipping now a little bit uh, two pages so now or three pages uh you continue, Table 1 shows that Asian and Hispanic residents are overrepresented in clusters of high walkability with loca location quotients much greater than one, which means 
rate. This finding is seemingly a reflection of the racial and ethnic diversity of the city's walkable west side neighborhoods. You have the graphic included. Just a few sentences down. Nevertheless, the most alarming characteristic of the high walkability clusters in Buffalo is their exclusion of black residents, specifically despite accounting for 36.60% of the city's population, non-Hispanic black residents make up only 20.60% of the high walkability clusters for a location quotient of 0.56. Bad. This result supports existing evidence of a spatial dissociation between black populations and walkable spaces. What is the difference in terms of why these non-black, non-white people can get to the west side and these great walkable areas? The black residents, not so much. Yeah, I think it's a historic uh, sort of landing spot. You know, it's if you studied um, the Chicago School of Sociology recognized that neighborhoods change as a new group enters in and then the, that group begins to pile up, right? They begin to increase in number. Um, so what's happened on the east or what's happened on the west side is you've had the um, non-white Hispanic um, population move in historically in the lower parts of the west side the sort of middle part is that Southeast Asian, um, Asian cohort um, that has moved into there. Um, and a lot of it is actually, you know, and I'm not 100% expert on, on immigration, but a lot of it is I had a student who was from, um, from Iraq. Um, they were settled by local institutions um, on, on the West side because of housing availability. Um, and then as some of those groups got settled and resettled through refugee um, resettlement institutions, um, they found places in those neighborhoods where fellow countrymen or fellow immigrants um, lived, and that's sort of how that, um, in, in many, in, you know, in some way, um, shaped that 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 population on the on the west side. Hmm. What's the difference in terms of Dr. Neil Krause's book? He talks about there's so much evidence of white people deliberately keeping black people out of the excluding black people from those areas. Why was what was the difference in terms of these non-white, non-black people that were allowed to settle there? Yeah, I, mean, I you know what I, I honestly, you know, not ducking the question, I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not really certain um, about about that question of uh, of mobility um, and, and exclusion. I mean, twenty twenty percent isn't necessarily equal to the thirty six percent that you would see um, on the city as a whole. But it's it's not you know like two percent that you'd have in North Buffalo or two percent that you'd have in the Elmwood Village. So is it statistically significantly low? Yeah, I mean, we could crunch the numbers, but it's not single digits. So um, you know I'm not here to say that, but you, you can never expect equal distribution of any population across any given geography. I just don't have the answer for that. And historically, that was an Italian neighborhood, and they were clearly and undeniably. Um, a force in keeping others out. Um, and so there's that historic um, issue as well. Mm, fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. My slippery question, and then you can depart us for the evening. Um, and you said, just making sure, you said a slippery question is what again? 
No, I just I it's, it came to me as like a double negative. So like I got confused with the question. So I know that I know that the, the point in the question that you asked, I I know exactly where it is. So I'm going to listen for it. Okay. I'm not like accusing you of trying to trip me up. I trip myself up. Question again. <clears throat> Do you have any evidence? Now, I might have said white people or people classified as white, either or, are going to permanently, voluntarily discontinue the practice of racism, white supremacy. Do you have any evidence of that? That was the question. So that's slippery. I got, I got, I got tripped up. It's, it, it was my mistake twice. Um, I got tripped up on the permanently and what was the second part? Permanently voluntarily. and voluntarily discontinue the practice. So I that that phrase that tripped me up. It's it's an honest mistake. If if I would have understood the question the first time, the answer would have been the same as the last. I'm not here to try to defend um, myself and try to backtrack. It was an honest mistake. Okay, I'm just pointing out for listeners. He didn't really change his response very much because he said, co and I'm just pointing out one word specifically, cohorts. He listed the same group both times. He said, my cohorts, the people that I'm around, they work against these issues and blah, blah, blah. But in terms of evidence, a substantial number, no. Then when he came back the second time around, he said the same thing, cohorts, and he listed other white people and blah, 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 and all that, that are working against this and all the rest of it. It's not like he even went and, and got a substantially larger population of white people to include amongst the cohorts who are allegedly against racism. So all of my suspicion uh, withstands like, and again, the same thing that I said before for listeners, like now I want you to think now, how many times does somebody go back to confirm your answer? You, yes, that's what I, that's my answer. And then you come back later. No, I need to give the exact opposite response same way I asked you to process 22 caliber killer nobody knows about this hmm our guest for the evening Dr. Jason Knight adding to our little buffalo syllabus gave us lots of other folks we can check on as we go even though I man oh man there is absolutely no way based on the conduct that I got from the, you this evening there is no way that I would believe any of your students white or non-white would come to your course and think yes racism white supremacy is the problem there is no way I believe that at all based on our dialogue but I could have been wrong listeners can come to their own conclusion about that much of time for much obliged for your time, Dr. Knight. Uh, appreciated going through the work with you this evening, sir. Thanks. Much obliged. Context of white supremacy. Your presence embiggened us all, sir. Uh, we will, <laughs> listeners, how many white people have we talked to at this point? It's hard for me to even. Go back. I have to go back and pull my list out like to uh, to count them at this point. So we got Dr. Knight. We got Anna Blotto, his student. That's Wowzers. Uh, Matt Greider doesn't count. Frank Dobson doesn't count. Sean Lay. Neil Krause. Mark Silverman. So that's five uh, different white people 
who've been on the program the most we had, Anna Blatt, and I even sent her the article, I told you, that was what I said, that was what I said, my God, he said his lame student, Anna Blotto, she's 25, come on, she's just a babe, she wasn't even born when that, he doesn't know, was Gus T. born when all this kookiness happened all that time ago? Anyway, I didn't say, I said Gus T is a historian. A whole lot of things happened before I was born and still, you should know information about this, my goodness. Anna Blotto, I sent her the link to one of the very few reports that actually did mention Joseph G. Christopher and included links so that you could get more information she didn't research and she's a researcher on Buffalo racism tacky and lame through and through so what I said so I have to think and I said at that time Anna Blotto, I think she was one of the very first people that we talked to. I didn't even know as much about this case at that time. Now we got a good two months of marinating on this case and all that we know. Anybody, that's why I said the book club is mandatory on this one. If for nothing else, this book club segment, this book club segment, the Catherine Massey book club on the cows on Catherine Pellinero's Absolute Madness. This is signature cow's work. What does that mean? If you had to pick, like, wow, this dude, Gus T, he's facilitated a book club through the podcast for 11 years my goodness that's crazy is it 12 at this point my gosh oh it's 11 Woof. years are rolling by so fast but yes 11 years 11 years that's crazy uninterrupted they read all these cookie books and sometimes sometimes even talk to the authors as well what is the best like why have they you know stuck with this for so long why is this constructive what is this and particularly if they say hey this all this reading is not just to brag about page turning this is supposed to be learning to help replace white supremacy with justice pick out one that hey what's the best of the book club absolute madness now I also could say Jeffrey Tubin run of his life there'd be a few that I'd, oh medical apartheid there'd be a few if you gave me the time but those would be just some that would come to mind that are in the last six years or so but absolute madness for more reasons than I have time to explain how important are these events that we've read about for the last two months and more importantly now if you are a white person or a non-white person you put your chest out, put bass in your voice. I'm Western New York. I'm Erie County. I teach about Buffalo. Want my students to understand how racism is at the center of all of this, or at least the main factor, right? 
Is Joseph G. Christopher a part of that? Last 50 years of Buffalo, last 40 years, Buffalo history. Number of folks said, I'm too young. I don't know serial killers. I just do public policy. We've had lots of different, you know, movements around all of that in terms of, you know, whatever, whatever, but it still come out to the same thing. All of these white people teach at Buffalo institutions, talk about racism, Buffalo history. Nothing. I even said with Dr. Krause's book, which is important, but man, that book goes right through the time period and talk racism is in the title, or at least race, but it's right in the title. Neighborhoods where that was a major part of this. Not even a footnote. At the time, in fact, at the time that we talked to Dr. Neil Krause, I wasn't even sure. I knew that is a major infraction. In the same way, I'll give you two ways to think about it. We'll take a quick break and then we'll get the folks' thoughts. Capitalism. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> we'll get folks' thoughts. The switch around on the question. All of that. Like uh Yeah, we'll we'll get folks' thoughts on what they heard from uh Dr. Knight. But when we had Dr. Kraus on the program a few weeks back, his brother called in. I wasn't even sure. I said it's either a two letter grade deduction automatic. If you write a book about Buffalo, anything really, paper, book, whatever, you do a project on Buffalo and racism, Joseph Christopher isn't mentioned. Especially if it's going to explicitly deal with that time period. Now, maybe depending on what the project is, depending on what years you're talking about, maybe like, eh, that's all we have to bring that up. But man, you're doing something that's going to be long term, which many of these folks that do these longer reports and what have you, they go into some of the history of, oh, when the black people migrated to Buffalo and this happened and Mayor Jimmy Sixpack and blah, blah, blah. How you go through Buffalo history, like I said, last 40 years, last 50 years, <laughs> Dr. Neil Krause's book, he started with Cynthia Wiggins. Now, that was closer to the time that that book was published, but we you cover the Joseph G. Christopher years and you don't even have a footnote? We'll take our break, see what folks have to think about that and all else that they heard from Dr. Jason Knight. Context of white supremacy, we will be right back. And from the late 1960s, after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this, and black people with their fists in there and all like that, and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action. And that is, I'm going to have these people so confused, they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage. 
or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they're comfortable. See, so give him some bling bling. It's like giving an animal a brand new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger. And when he rides by in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see. That that's what they see. That that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way and indirectly see ourselves that way. Context of white supremacy. All righty. Wow, there is so much to explain. I will do my best. Just I'm talking about just trying to get the schedule corrected. I said this past weekend, the compensatory call in, we were supposed to be live yesterday at 8 p.m. Eastern. People showed up. They called in. I'm sure some folks, a little name calling at Augustine got me rushing get home and messed my dinner up. Could have planned other things. Been at the beach. I got it. Can't even say my bad because my original vision Dr. Knight, I thought he was going to be with us yesterday, but I said then I had to confirm with him. Dr. Knight was on vacation, so he gets back. He says, oh, man, I'm just getting back to Buffalo. Uh, Monday won't work. We can do Tuesday. (sighs) Say, fine, but even that wasn't a problem. My vision said, so we'll rotate. As opposed to having Dr. Knight here on Monday, we'll have him on Tuesday. And my original plan on Tuesday, we were going to have our recap, the compensatory call-in from uh, 2013 response to Dr. Welsing's thoughts on cannabis legalization. We were going to do that on Tuesday. I said, hey, we'll just make that on Monday. But I said that program is connected to Dr. Silver, white woman coming on the program who's working in California to get the warning labels on cannabis products I needed to confirm with her as well to make sure Wednesday. Yes. Okay. Okay. Because I wanted to have those programs back to back, really, so that we could revisit what was said in 2013. And then, hey, here we are at 2022. What Dr. Welsing said to fruition. Warning labels about psychosis and cannabis products, especially for young children, which she talked about then. I couldn't get the confirmation from Dr. Silver until like late this afternoon. So I didn't want to do that program on Monday and then find out that Dr. Silver couldn't be with us this week. that We have to do it next week or something and then not have those programs, as I said, back to back. 
so that we can do our revisit. If any folks, you know, want to share their thoughts about what they said basically 10 years ago, hindsight, they say is 2020. So maybe they have different thoughts now. And then we'll prep to chat it up with a white woman, what she's saying. We will still do it that way. I got the confirmation. So Dr. Silver will be with us tomorrow. White woman, white woman medical doctor in California has been working to get warning labels on cannabis products uh, about possible mental health side effects and psychosis, including psychosis. I think this legislation uh, is moving through the state government uh, in the Golden State, but we'll be talking about all that tomorrow. But so the only difference is now we'll have to do two programs. Hopefully this will not be too early uh, for folks. You all can give a, a voice on that too. I suspect for some people on the East Coast, it might be too early or even maybe on the West Coast, I was thinking. But yeah, for some people, period, it might be a little bit too early. <sighs> the archives will always be there. Uh, but 3 p.m. Pacific, so that'd be 6 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central, 3 p.m. Pacific. We'll do the recap tomorrow. Compensatory call in from July 2013 when there was lots of commentary about Dr. Welsing's views on cannabis legalization. We'll make sure we go back. What did Dr. Welsing say? Hear that. And then we'll hear what did folks have to say on the subsequent compensatory call in. And then actually, Dr. Welsing doubled down on what she said when she came back to visit with us a few days later. So this is basically kind of going through. Uh, an abbreviated stretch of 30 days in the summer of 2013 after the Trayvon Martin murder trial at the cows. We'll do that tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, and then normal time, Dr. Silver, white woman medical doctor, will be with us, said the exact same thing as Dr. Welsing said in 2013. Yikes. All this cannabis can cause psychosis, mental health problems. Already got enough of that after three years of the Rona now. Looking forward. Uh, let's see. As for the guest for today, my slipper, I'll start with that. Number one, I did not get to use the exact same adverbs that I normally use. I normally get in permanent and voluntarily, although I don't think those are slippery, tricky adverbs for someone with a doctorate. Evidence, permanently, discontinue. I think you said that one too. I said that all the way through. I don't, I don't think discontinue is slippery, tricky. Anyway, but I did not say uh, permanently. I said eternally. That's another one. I mean, hey, is that tricky, deceptive, niggardly? I have to go back to hear what word I used in place of voluntarily the first time around. But I don't. And again, if I was confused, give it to me one more time. And you do have a doctorate, yes? 
And more importantly, I confirmed. Anywho, and his answer didn't even change. Like you would have to, that might be one. So I guess, uh, yeah, it'd be hard to get. I have to put that maybe in the description for people who listen to the archives to really pay attention to that. And then come back later on for his switch up because he didn't even really change his answer very much. It just went from no, there's no evidence. And then my cohorts, they're working against it. The people that I'm around are cool, well-meaning white people, blah, blah, blah. He just came back around and said, oh, yes, there is evidence. My cohorts, they're out here working. You can go back and see if my memory is bad or whatever. But I mean, that's about what happened. Second thing, man, this is another one. So you have to see if my memory is accurate. The folks that are with us. This is a question to you all. See if your memory is good. Did he say the mayor of Buffalo's name? I'll unmute everybody so they can get their response in. But did you hear him say the mayor of Buffalo's name? Because I remember when he was doing his, hey, racism, please. We got a black mayor. He's totally ignored the east side. He has to go. He said, his hands are tied. Talk about those metaphors. Whoa. Whoa. I thought we were going to hear about the privileged black male, but whoa, wait a minute. His, his hands are tied. And we got some kind of slave. Is he in shackles? What's going on here? We got Kunta up in here. What is my man? Solomon Northup. Didn't he get shackled in New York and drug on down south 12 years? What's going on here? How is the black male doing anything if his hands are tied? He said he got to go with his with his hands out. That sounds like he's some pauper, some beggar. Racial showcasing. But the question, did he say the mayor of Buffalo's name? I don't think he did. My memory could be bad. I've been told that. So maybe but did you hear him say Mayor Byron Brown hey he has totally invisibilized the good folks of East Buffalo hadn't helped them with their walkability scores nothing turned a blind eye and a deaf ear old Mayor Brown even though his hands are tied maybe I didn't I didn't hear that correctly but if I didn't hear a name like woo wee talk about racial showcasing and you don't even get a name you are just negro fill in the blank to yes see it's not racism white supremacy. <laughs> uh, the capitalism that was so important because when I gave my definition for racism he pivoted he pivoted to all that capitalism and all the rest of it that's why I said then like whoa <laughs> let's slow this down and make sure he said, sure, I do agree. And then he went to capitalism, everything. He even came later in the program and said directly, capitalism is driving politics in America. I thought we were in a system of white supremacy racism. Capitalism. He talked about the folks in the east side. He said they are victims of capitalism. Were Peyton Gingerin attacked? Are they victims of racism? Hmm. They got that old mayor. All right. I I told him before he left, based on what he said here, 
there is no way in the world I would think his students, white or non-white, they would come through his class with a grasp of this is what racism, white supremacy is and how it works. I would think maybe they think it's capitalism or class. That's what they're going to talk about. They are not going to talk about racism, white supremacy. He said he didn't even have a definition for this. I don't think about it from that component. I think about it from policy. I kept asking from the beginning, is racism, white supremacy, what's driving policy and procedure here? I said that from Dr. Neil Krause's book, Deliberate. That's one thing I can say. He is in the title, Race, Neighborhoods, and Community Power, Buffalo Politics, 1934 to 1997. He made it explicit. This is deliberate. This is not accidental. The driving force, white supremacy, racism. We talked about that on the program is one of the main points he said that's what I said like in addition man I haven't been to Buffalo that said I have done my studying I get to Buffalo so that oh okay I can go to some of these neighborhoods and talk to some of these folks like are you serious you haven't even we talk to folks there study this is your area you talk about housing and neighborhoods and Buffalo and race Oh, did you see Neil Krause's book? Nope. He teaches. We've had people who teach at the same institution as Dr. Krause. They haven't read his book. And don't know about Joseph G. Christopher. Now, we've had that even happen a couple times where the white person, they did know Cynthia Wiggins. They did not know Joseph G. Christopher. They certainly didn't know him to any what is his, you know, distinction? Can you tell me some details? Like you heard it by two sentences and that's about it. Maybe most of them didn't even have that. What? And again, if Gus T is making too much of that, you could just say that like, man, I didn't even remember it. It's not that important. That's in Dr. Dobson's book. Nobody really cared about these deaths then and nobody cares now. And Maybe we shouldn't. Folks who dialed in with commentary, make sure there wasn't anything else super important. We had a non-white person who wrote in when Dr. Silverman was on the program. They said, man, I thought he was, you know, honest, at least as honest as you can expect from someone classified as white. And what happens? Like, wow, that was not my opinion at all. I do not think anybody will say that about Dr. Knight today, but I could be wrong. Uh, let me make sure if there's not anything left out. He didn't know about Angie Smith's book, Right of Way, either. Like, uh, that's right there related to housing and the, the walking score. He quoted some of her. He referenced some of her other work as well. That's just... Anywho, uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in with the hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Uh, let's see. We'll start with. Did he mention the mayor's name? You certainly can share your other comments. But yeah, if you're going to talk about anything, did he actually say Mayor Brian Brown and then blah, blah, blah? You know, it's his fault. He didn't look out for the east side, blah, 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 and his hands tied. Or did he just say the mayor's black and then blah, blah, blah? Just trying to see my own memory. My memory is that he did not give us a name. Folks that dialed in with a hand up or anybody else, if you have commentary, feel free. Give us your commentary. And then did he mention the mayor? Mayor's name. Um, yeah, Gus, victim from the Um, 
I, I don't know. I don't. I don't recall. No, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't mention. I don't think he mentioned the man's name. No, he didn't. I, I could be incorrect, but I don't recall that. Um, Gus, do you think my question was a gotcha question? Did he? That's what he said. He sure did. Like, I don't know what. <laughs> I don't. That's why I had to ask him. Like, what? What is it? We got. So we got a gotcha question. We got a slippery question. Like, ooh, we. Like, I don't know what all that is. Uh, and yours was around the uh, Ted Bundy and all that. He said, "I don't. Hey, come in and ask me about every cotton picking serial uh, killer." Incidentally, the cows has been on the air so long. Every time we have a guest on. From the Milwaukee area? Oh. Gus T. Ad. Oh, by the way, Jeffrey Dahmer? And I think that's also every time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I remember old Jeffrey eating about Yeah. We've done that for some other series, too. But same way that I asked folks to think about me. Yeah, I don't remember anybody saying that. It's, what kind of gotcha moment is this, man? You asked me, come on here and talk about my journal article or my book or, you know, whatever. You didn't ask me ask me some crazy question about some serial killer and you know white cannibals and you sitting out here with these gotcha questions nobody says that it's oh yeah jeffrey dahmer mm-hmm. yeah remember that one mm-hmm. eating up all those yeah this is crazy wasn't it i don't yeah, know it weird, I, guess, I mean I, i'm sorry guys mm-hmm. go ahead yeah no no I, I just think you know i wasn't really it wasn't a gotcha moment i mean gotcha question you know, I just basically wanted him to kind of like, you know, see the parallel. Like, see, you know, I mean, you knew, you knew who Ted Bundy is. You knew who uh, uh, Gacy is. You know, what I mean, you knew, you probably know who Jeffrey Dahmer is. You know what I'm saying? So, just like how you just talk about how, and you know, just basically the, the problems and how black people are just invisible as it relates to correcting walking space. You can make that same correlations. I mean, we're even invisible when it comes to being hunted down by a serial killer. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Wayne Gacy just had a whole a documentary on Netflix. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Ed Bundy, they, I mean, they paint him as this handsome serial killer. You know, they, 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 they talk about Jeffrey Dahmer how articulate and smart he was, but nobody knows who Joseph. So I was just basically trying to make that correlation. And make a correction, I said fair, I meant to say, is what I'm saying, fair, I meant to say what I'm saying, logical. So, and then, like, Firefighter, um, the Firefighter pointed out, he talks about capitalism, neo neoliberals. Like, what Like what does that mean? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, what, what, what actually does that mean? Who's at who's the head of capitalism? Who created capitalism? Does capitalism have an office? You know, where can I where can I mail a letter to capitalism if I need something done as related to black people? You know what I'm saying? Is there an office of neoliberalism where I can contact somebody to correct the walking space or the walking situation in Buffalo? It, it, it really just really makes no sense, and you're correct. If this is a college professor and you have impressionable minds, black minds, they will come out of there confused and just, they, 
just confused and it basically probably will be, you know, writing you letters, Gus, telling you how you are basically an unruly Negro talking to these white people who gave you the opportunity and was gracious enough to talk to you. That, that's, that's the kind of letters you get from the people coming out of his class that we had to depend on him speaking about racism. And I'm like, I told him, I said, you don't, I said, you're talking about a black area. You're talking about how they are being discriminated. But then you also say, I'm not an expert on race, but you're writing about race. You're writing about it. <sighs> Still learning. Still learning. Still learning. Incidentally, I just want to point that out. When he said, I'm not a billion, I can read about being a billionaire but I'm not a billionaire I did not think that that was uh, comparable to racism he used so many metaphors uh, so many analogies uh, and comparisons uh, and particularly I think I forgot even the caller that pointed out the distinct oh he's still with us yeah uh, that my question was so who's more informed about what racism is and how it works and that's the response that we get again I can only conclude and I don't even I can't even really think of other like if we're going to talk about a whole system not like an experience of being a billionaire but a whole system dynamic I cannot think of anything else like that where like I said I mean just daily things that everybody experiences nobody assumes that you are an expert about vehicles just because you are you could be a driver not just a passenger no one assumes that you have and I mean any level of expertise even how to back the seat up just because you sit in a vehicle maybe every day only racism white supremacy that's when, hey, the people who've experienced, they are the experts. Again, you have many times where the victims, they're not even aware that racism is happening to them sometimes ever, sometimes decades before they even figure out, ooh, racism has been practiced against me. Anywho, uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Did he say the mayor's name? Again, you can say your other comments. Did he say the mayor's name or did he just give the mayor and then go on with his, he's leaving the folks out, hands tied, pauper? Uh, greetings again. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure of him giving the name of the mayor. But he did in uh from answering uh, or from responding to my question, he did mention about a mayor I don't know if he said his name a mayor and that that's and that's what prompt me to uh mention about uh the situation down here in miami gardens uh which it's not only the mayor is a non-white person, 
non-white black person, uh, just about everybody of the positions that, you know, of the, of the professional political positions in Miami Gardens are, are, uh, uh, are manned by non-white black people but they don't control Miami gardens at all. So it's like a useless, a useless, uh, expression, especially, uh, by coming from a white person that could be a white person practicing racism, white supremacy by saying that there is a dictionary that white people have on diverting terms. I have heard those terms, uh, for at least a, at least 35 years of all different types, deflective terms to willfully not be concise on racism, white supremacy, uh, uh, and capitalism, the term capitalism is definitely one of them because the bottom line is, uh, I looked it up. It is it, a noun. It says in the dictionary that it's a noun. Uh, but with a noun connected with a noun, correct me if I'm wrong, that's a person, place, or thing. <laughs> and, and I'm putting emphasis on person when it comes down to it. And the, and the people who capitalize on a global basis are white people. And he can state that. He can state that by, if he, if, if he, uh, puts a, puts a, uh, if it's on being honest, he can state that. But a lot of white people, most white people, in my opinion, would not state those things. And they have put those terms like capitalism and quote unquote neo, I forgot what was the last part of that, neo whatever. I, I even don't like the term neo uh, because racist white supremacy is certainly is not something new. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And the whole last but not least, the whole idea about, I wasn't born when this happened. This is why it's not to my knowledge, you know, that sort of thing. That's another diverting thing to not to, to not to, uh, have to answer to, uh, being challenged to speak honestly on racism, white supremacy. I mean, there, there is there is no degrees in racism, white supremacy, no degreed uh, status, you know. So uh, don't come telling me as a white person that you can't talk on some any subject at all that has you know that has to do with racism, white supremacy. But anyway, uh, it's to be expected. What? Ever the issues that we have with the uh, the guests is to be expected. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, other folks with a hand up. Did y'all have commentary you wanted to get in? Can I be heard? Zero three. Can I be heard? Five six. Caller at zero three. Five six. Yes, we can hear you. I think he was the one that asked uh, the follow-up uh, question about who is more informed. You know, the white people being, or excuse me, us, we being more informed. So we have to be 
uh, we experience it rather, so we have to be more informed. You can give your commentary. Just do you remember if he mentioned the mayor by name? Um, I I thought that he did, but I would agree with retired firefighter. He deflected to somebody else and then gave that name. If I'm not mistaken, he didn't say the current mayor. I think I could be wrong. Oh, okay. That but, that answer. Um, thank you. Um, I, I suspect the doctor was practicing deception. Um, he used terms. He actually accused, if I'm not mistaken, someone of a double negative. And I had jotted down two times that he had practiced that earlier. Um, that's also why I really wanted to get more clarification on the pattern you know, of your program that white people say that the victim's more, conf- you know, um, confused. And um, I've noticed uh, that little switch in the question of who is more informed than confused that really focuses in. And then, like, he made up something new twice just on the fly with me asking the same question twice. But there's, like you said, there's no other example of where that could logically or functionally be correct just in a street fight. And I think there was a guest, I'm not mistaken, in the past two weeks that gave the example of, oh, the person being hit knows more about the fight. That's not true. You know, I I didn't want to ask him, but you can't just go up in the MMA because why? That's a technical system. Martial arts in particular, just fighting is a technical system. You can't fight a boxer. You'll get knocked out every time. But you get knocked out shows you you're not more informed about boxing. But that's that's expected, and that's what they do. And uh, just thank you for the program, and I'm mute out. Absolutely, that's. I think white people they just everything is to push away from the deliberate scientific nature of white supremacy racism. It's not about none of this. The walkability and poor neighborhoods, disinvestment, none of this is accidental the exclusion of black people none of this is just a coincidence science dedication what the question uh volatile oh wait a minute forgot other person did we miss anybody else had a hand up commentary that they want to make sure they got in one one five nine did you have commentary are you satisfied Soon they're good. Grant. Uh, much obliged for folks tuning in. Um, yeah, he accused me of making double negatives with my slippery gotcha questions. Um, I don't know. He didn't think Cynthia Wiggins was a gotcha question. Uh, and I've been asking a lot of our guests about Cynthia Wiggins uh, as well since I found out who she was. Uh, again, the same way. If I, we've talked to a number of guests from all over the world. When we talk to guests uh, from, man, I can go globally. Uh, when we've talked to guests who were from Oslo or close to Oslo, Norway, or they voluntarily brought up that area of the world got to Anders Breivik they didn't say man 
you and your gotcha moments. I don't know all these serials. Oh, yes, yes, Andrews Breivik, yes. He's got a PlayStation 5 now, but yes. Terrible what happened, yes, back 2011. Yes, summertime, it's about this time, it's about this time, 2011. They got that movie, I think it's July uh, I think it's called July 22. I think that's what it's called, July 22. I can't believe that. That's crazy, July 22. But anyway, uh, they didn't say that. That's I said the way that I process all of that. Hey, if you were going to do, tell me that you do research on the city of Atlanta, much less you teach in Atlanta. Oh, what about the so-called Atlanta child murders? What? What is that? Huh? Same thing I said. I wouldn't care what age. If you were 25, 30, 40, whatever. Especially if you said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm 40, 30, and I've been living in the Atlanta area, you know, all my life or most of my life or whatever. Like, what? And you don't know about the so-called Atlanta child murders? Hmm. I guess I'm going to have to ask this question. So what department do we think the people at the University of Buffalo or SUNY Buffalo State or wherever, what department do we think these would be the people that would know about Joseph G. Christopher? Is that like the criminology department? What department is that? Like Buffalo? I don't even know. What department do we think they would teach the history of Joseph G. Christopher and the 22 caliber killings? That'll be one that we can uh, think about I have no unless it's like do they have a uh, is that the history department we got to go specific to Buffalo history like once we are no longer talking exclusively about Buffalo history we can no longer talk about Joseph G. Christopher we're not going to mention him not related to anything else that happens in fact we did talk to someone who wrote a book about Buffalo history and they didn't know about Joseph G. Christopher either Sean Lay uh, Hooded Knights on the Niagara Ku Klux Klan in Buffalo, New York. Now, his book is about the 1920s, but even still. And he's substantially over 30. <sighs> I don't know, man. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow. Man, I'm excited for tomorrow. If folks really, you know, have a problem, feel like, man, I would like to participate or I would participate in the recap of the 2013 compensatory call-in, hear what people had to say, maybe hear what I had to say about cannabis legalization, Dr. Welsing's thoughts and all that. But 6 p.m. Eastern is too early. If we had a lot of folks who said that that's just way too early, I would like to chime in. If it had to be later or a different day, that type of thing, maybe I'd reconsider. But if that doesn't happen, we'll just do our two programs for tomorrow. So we'll do the recap 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. That'll give us ample time so we can hear what Dr. Welsing said and then everybody who chimed in, what they had to say. And then if any folks want to dial in, give their thoughts, it should be a little, it should be after four or it should be after 7 p.m. So that should be a little bit later. That should make it a little bit more accessible uh, for people if they want to dial in after they've heard what was said. If you want to dial in with hindsight, like, man, I thought some, maybe I changed my opinion or I'm sticking to it. That's what I thought 10 years ago. Nothing's changed. We'll have time for that. And then Dr. Silver, white woman, medical doctor will join us. We will chat it up, but that'll all be tomorrow. Two programs looking forward to it. Much obliged for folks uh, who joined us this evening. Hopefully it was worthy of your time and energy. I'll go back and listen to the archives myself to see, did he say mayor 
Byron Brown. Either way, it'd still be racial showcasing. I just want to see for the detail. Did we even get a name for Mr. Brown or nothing? Nothing? Neoliberal, no counts. Anywho, much obliged for everyone who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Sobriety would be best. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Uh, if you are out and about, man, if you see someone being hostile and rowdy, exit. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled up, not on a mobile device, doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no reckless production of offspring cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>